It's October 15th, 2020. This is Rook. Today on Rook, two women who are doing their part to help Iranians in Iran and across the diaspora in different and engaging ways. First, in the aftermath of the passing of Maestro Shajarian, I'm joined by the director of the Golha Project, a multi-year mission to preserve Iranian culture and media of the 20th century based on the iconic Golha radio programs that ran until 1979. Jane Lewison will be with us to share her compelling journey. Then Tina Parsoman, the popular Instagram psychologist who grew up in New Zealand and is now based back in Tehran joins me to share reflections on the current Persian psyche. I'm Gian Gomeshi. This is Rook. Welcome to episode number 53 of Rook. Salam dostan aziz, omidvar hastam ke khub hastin. We are coming to you on SoundCloud, YouTube, Spotify, Instagram, iTunes, and Telegram, and on a continuing mission to create an audiovisual encyclopedia of Iranian diaspora identity. It is a big edition of Rook today. In about an hour or so, Tina Parsomand will be joining me. So she's a, a psychologist and the woman behind the popular Instagram channel called Insight with Tina Parsa. She's a young Iranian New Zealander who has, in recent years, moved back to Tehran and is working as a highly in-demand therapist there. I want to get to, to her story of being an Iranian kid growing up in Auckland, New Zealand, and her insights on the Iranian psyche and what she's observing about Persians in Iran and across the world who are her clients and fans. Tina Parsomand in about an hour or so. Before that, Jane Lewison will be joining us from England. What a story she has and what a job she has been doing preserving significant elements of Iranian popular culture, media, music, poetry, art with the Golha Project and the Golestan Project. If you care about Persian culture, if you care about Persian culture on any level, especially in the shadow of the passing of the great uh, maestro Mohammad Reza Shajarian last week, you will want to hear this conversation, I hope, uh, depending on how it goes, and get to know Jane. Jane Lewison coming up in a few minutes. Uh, I am uh, surrounded here with, uh, well, not quite surrounded, but uh, the <laughs> members of the Rook team have gathered. Captain Reza, hello, sir. Hello, sir. Hello, sir. Uh, Groovy Shia, how are you? Hi, hi. And uh, you have to treat Shia with, he's an artist, you know? Yeah, you have to be nice to him. <laughs> and the fabulous Keon. Oh, feeling very Farsi today. Yeah. I was always told by my mom, don't say salam, that's Arabic. Say durud bashama. Okay, damn it, Garm. 
Well, you know, speaking of that, I have a funny story about Persian words. As you always do. And language <laughs> to share with you guys. Well, because I'm, you know, my sister is actually the linguist in the family. Really? I mean, she's a professor. Of, what do you? No, I mean, Keon, it, why do you retain nothing? I mean, you know of my sister being a professor do, of linguistics. I mean, you know Reza's an actor. You no, know Shia's a musician. I meant, but you're always surprised. I meant in the Farsi language. Is she also She more... has studied the Farsi ah, language, yes. Okay. But I, anyway, I... <laughs> that's how I meant it. <laughs> I know. I, yeah. I like to... We're <laughs> starting fun, early. Yes, we're starting early. So yeah, but she's the linguist in the family, the official one. But I'm, I'm fascinated with language and words. I always have been. You know, I used to have a dictionary as a kid of next to my bed. You did. I know. I, I know you know that. Not surprised. He's so, always uh, making fun of us for our language. Me and Reza last week, what was it? I said diction. diction. She has great diction. Yeah. Like, that's more audible. And, and actually, in retrospect, you might not have been wrong. But we'll get to that later. It's like the or diaspora thing. Go right. on. Go on. So, uh, but this is about how brand names become the word for certain objects or products. So, yesterday, I was going out to get some supplies uh, like for our office, and I was talking to producer Susan and Ponta the Artist, who uh, both work here, uh, a couple of our team members. Uh, and we were talking in Farsi, and, and, and you know, I was saying, okay, chilazamdarim, sabun, kahve, digechi, you know, like, what do we need? Uh, and it occurred to me, <laughs> it occurred to me that I don't know the name for sponge in Farsi. Now, Reza and Shia don't say anything, okay? I don't know the name for sponge. So I asked them. So Keon, like, you know, like a sponge to wash dishes or clean a surface, right? So uh, now I, I was assuming there there was going to be some $10,000 Farsi word that's hard to pronounce that is literally I, the word for sponge. I know it. Do you know what the word for, yeah, what is it? <clears throat> Wait for it. Is sponge? No, it's no. not. But, no, really? but funny enough, it's pretty close. Reza, do you want to tell us what it is? Yeah. So, what's your favorite drink? Uh, whiskey, wine. Uh huh. Uh, what's another term for whiskey? Uh, I don't know. Whiskey. Would you say scotch? A scotch. Oh, I said it. Didn't <laughs> you I? said a sponge. A sponge. A scotch. Uh, but oh. I love that it's called a, 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 a scotch. Yeah. Like a scotch. because I guess the sponges that they originally had, or you know, I mean, Scotch still makes sponges, but that's the the oh. brand, the company that's name, true. right? That's true. That's <laughs> like Scotch. That's yeah. like, like Kleenex. Kleenex. Yeah. So, can, go ahead, Shia. Can I add something? Yeah. A scotch. <laughs> yes, but yeah. actually... I used an a scotch this morning because yes, we cleaned the oven. But yeah. actually, we have also a sponge. Oh, that's like, true. Like a sponge. For example... It sounds like a sponge. For example, Baba Espanji, you know? <laughs> the Baba Espanji? Yeah. What is that? Who is that? Baba Sponge Square... Father Sponge? Fa oh, I mean, oh, oh. SpongeBob. 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 Baba Espanji? That's the best. Baba Espanji. Baba Espanji. Baba Espanji. What yeah. dimension are we in right now? What? <laughs> this is what it's like to be a, you know, mixed up uh, Persian in the diaspora. So then I remembered... Now, you guys always think that I've never actually been to Iran. I have been to Iran. When? Twice. Wow. I have. You forget this. And Shia, I think it was when in my you book. But five? When I was two and when I was, a five, when I was five. Just yeah. for, you know, three weeks visiting yeah. with the family. Mm -hmm. And so this was before Engelab. So mid-70s. Mid I was there as a five-year-old. And... Uh, 
And I remember, I mean, I do have memories of Iran. Of course, this is Tehran of the 1970s. And, you know, my my family, all the family in, in Tehran, whining and dining us or Mahmoonis and everything. I remember we would go to, my parents, my mom's going to kill me for maybe saying this, but I don't know. We would go to these nightclubs, like... Like we'd go out. I was a five-year-old kid. I was going to say. We, uh, no, we go to like a. Uh, I mean, maybe I'm remembering it as a. But but I know it was late at night. We'd go to some place where there'd be like a, a dinner and a show and drinks and you know it was like high society living you know, and um, and of course everybody they would some people would drink alcohol and stuff, mm-hmm. but I would they would say what would you like and would you like Pepsi. Or Canada Dry. <laughs> yeah. Now, do you know what Canada That's Dry true. is? Canada Dry is. Yeah. Do you, do, I, it, it was an orange drink. An orange yes, it yeah. was Canada Dry. Like was it was like orange Fanta. Yeah, so yeah. I'm this British kid, and I'm in. I'm an English kid, and I'm in Iran. And so I was like, man, Canada Dry, man, Canada Dry. Like I want Canada Dry, right? The, associating that with with an orange drink Uh yeah and that's the only thing i knew about canada then we're moving to canada and i'm like there's gonna be lots of canada dry there's gonna be like there's fat there's gonna be like orange drink everywhere when we get to canada then i come to canada i realize that canada dry is like esprit right right because it's like a or like seven up or something wait a minute isn't it ginger ale isn't canada Dry? yeah it's clear yeah it's canada dry so i have no idea how canada dry became the orange drink in in Iran, yeah. do you do you know? Do you know what I'm talking about? Do you know about yes. this orange drink? Did, yeah. I don't know if it still exists yeah. there. Yeah. So back in Iran, there were only two drinks. They would say, well, they would either say Pepsi or Canada Dry, or if you go to like Shahristan or like a little like places that were not as upper class, they'd be like. Uh, do you want siyah yazard? Black or, or, or yellow? That I remember. They but, would but, do that. But, but so I, that's the same thing, right? Same Pepsi thing. or Canada exactly. Dry. Yes, yeah. but I remember that they asked Kokaya Canada. Oh, I, 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 I remember <laughs> Kokaya Canada. And so Canada like, I think Canadians origin. have no idea yeah. how often Canada will get name checked <laughs> in, 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 <laughs> in Iran or still does. You know, would you like <laughs> Coca or Canada? And Canada being not just this prosperous or interesting nation of progressive people and uh, beautiful <laughs> nature and vistas, but an orange fizzy drink. Right? Yeah. So they had an orange drink. Canada yeah. Dry yeah. did that. Yeah. That's why I was a kid, so I, I couldn't drink alcohol. So yeah. I would order Canada Dry. Uh, this is and nice it would be orange. Ju- it, like, or, it's like orange Fanta. Yeah. yeah. Huh. I think Shocking. they still have that. If I'm not mistaken. I've never seen it. Yeah. Not in Canada. No, no, no. no. In Iran. They oh, in still Iran. Have that. Oh, they that still I. Have Canada mm. Dry. If I'm not huh. Is it like a discontinued brand in Canada? Like is well, the, I don't know they just continued Canada, it over there? Is, anyway, I've never seen there. this here. You can use the Scotch <laughs> while you're drinking your Canada Dry <laughs> and watching oh. Bob Esponge. <laughs> Bob Esponge. That's so great. Um, a big show we've got coming up. I'm I'm uh, looking forward to uh, Tina, Tina Insight with Tina Parsize, her popular Instagram channel. As I say, that's coming up in. Uh, and uh, oh, there's one, th- one other thing I was going to say. Our website, our website is finally. I like our website. Mm-hmm. It's been six, almost six months since the show launched, but we finally have a website that looks pretty good. So now, I'm telling because each week 
You know, the website should be the hub of all things, Rook, right? That's mm. really the place we want to be sending people. And each week, it, you know, keen listeners will know I'll be saying like, yeah, so um, check us out on SoundCloud or, you know, go to our Instagram page. <laughs> because the website, we were building it. It wasn't, and it's mm. still under construction. I mean, it's still, yeah. but I, I think it's looking pretty good right now. Have you? Have, ever, have, have you but, ever been to our website? I, of course right. I have, Jean. But okay. what's, what's changed now that is to your There's approval? There's a picture of you now. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. There's Wait, the, the uh, team picture is up. I was going to say, we haven't put up our bios yet. That's no. something that's missing. No, but yeah. uh, but no, but the, the, it, it, uh, Ponce of the Artist has been working hard on it. It's got, there's uh, a bunch of different, it just looks better. The, mm-hmm. it's, it's cleaner. It's got, yeah. it's got some, it's functioning. Yeah, it looks good. <laughs> the episodes are there. <laughs> I mean, yeah. this is progress, yeah. right? Yeah. There's also a section called Support Rook. So if you, and if you click on that, you go to this, this little part where you can donate to Rook to keep us going, keep the lights on, uh, either give a one-time donation or be a monthly supporter. And if you become a monthly supporter, and it can be very little each month, if you just, you know, you know then you'll get some Rook merch, which we haven't made yet, but <laughs> we are working on that. And well, that's the, what you'll get. The mugs are ready, sort of. Are they? The mugs are ready. The we mugs have ready. Uh, like six of them that we already use. <laughs> I was going to say, we can I don't send have those one. to people, but we can, but we'll make more and we'll make more merch. But anyway, if you go to our website, it's rookmedia.com to check out all of our episodes, uh, to link, link to all of our different platforms, rookmedia.com. And there's a section called Support Rook if you want to do so. Thank you. All right, Captain Reza, Groovy Shia. The fabulous Keon. I'll see you in a little while. Uh, Tina Parsomand coming up in about an hour. But first, take a listen to this. taste of the original recording of Morga Sahar, a song that may be familiar to some Persians. That's Kamara Molok, the first woman of her time to sing in public in Iran without wearing a veil. The song was composed by Nedavud, uh, lyrics by Bahar, a little sliver of 20th century Iranian cultural history. You know, it goes without saying that every proud nation state in the world has a vested interest in preserving its cultural artifacts in history, right? Think of the National Gallery of Art in Canada, the Museum of Television and Radio in New York, the National Radio Archive at the British Library, or say, the Museum of Music in Paris. But what happens when a nation does not have a proper or comprehensive archive of its own popular culture? In fact, what happens when a nation endures a revolution that declares it unlawful to even be playing some kinds of music, let alone celebrating it, in a museum? 
Such is the sad story of many lost archives of 20th century radio, TV, music, poetry, and print from Iran. Well, Jane Lewison has made it her life mission to change this. That's right, Jane, a non-Iranian by birth, although we may certainly consider her an honorary Iranian at this point. She has devoted many years to the preservation and archive recordings of classical Persian music and poetry. Jane is a research associate at at the Department of Music and the Center for Iranian Studies at the University of London in the UK. She lived in Iran during the 1970s for six years and is a graduate of Pahlavi University in Shiraz. She has been involved in the research and promotion of various aspects of Persian studies for the last three decades. So since 2005, Jane Lewison has been directing something called the Golha Project under the auspices of the British Library in London. The Golha Project is an encyclopedic website for Persian music and literature based on the Golha radio programs broadcast in Iran from 1956 until 1979. This project has been supported by the Iran Heritage Foundation since 2008. Jane is also currently the director of the Golestan Project. The Golestan Project is about creating a world resource for the Persian performing arts of the 20th century, such as music, film, theater, and printed matter. So an expanded version of the Golha Project. And the Golha Project is especially significant, given that it was the mainstay of the great Muhammad Reza Shajarian, who performed as part of the Golha radio shows many, many times. And it only makes sense that we bring on this guest in the aftermath of his passing. Right now, Jane Lewison joins me from the village of Eden in the UK. Hello, Jane. Hi, how are you? I'm, I'm very well. It's a pleasure to have you on the program. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here with you and with all audience. How does it feel to have become the hero of the Iranian diaspora for your tireless championing of Persian culture and history? Well, I think, as you would say in Iran, that's a bit of a bluff. <laughs> but in any case, uh, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm passionate about Iran, passionate about Iranian culture, and it gives me pleasure to do whatever I can uh, to uh, p- preserve the memory of these great artists and make sure their work and their, and their livelihoods ha- have not been forgotten. Do you want to say anything about that little piece of music we just played off the top, Morga Sahar? What do you well, know about it? Mar- Morga Sahar, um, you know, it was a, a, a poem by Bahar, and Bahar, he's Malika Shah Ara Bahar, and he spent many years in prison, and he was exiled in the country and everything because he was not, um, you know, Reza Shah really didn't like him very much, and so um, uh, this is a kind of, uh, ha- and now it has become almost a revolutionary anthem in Iran, not in Iran, but outside of Iran. I remember Shah Jarian, every concert he used to end with this Morga Sahar. <laughs> And it has been um, recorded by almost all the top artists, you know, Gugush has recorded it, um, Arif has recorded it, and the tune itself has been, uh, has, has been then 
recorded with other poems also. So it's really, you know, sort of like a mainstay of Persian mm. um, uh, music and poetry. It's clear you don't know your stuff, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but, but what about that recording that we heard in the introduction, that version of it itself? Do you know anything about that recording? I mean, that sounds well, that- like... It- Go ahead. That recording was uh, done in, I think, probably about the 1930s uh, by Columbia Records um, uh, and uh, in Iran. It was it was recorded in Iran, and um, it was on, uh, from a 78 record. So that wouldn't have been on the Golha programs because they started in 1956. But no, but that would be part of your Golestan project. Yes, that's right. By the time the Golha came into existence, uh, Qamar was quite old and she had contracted throat cancer. And so although she did sing for the uh, radio when it was first uh, opened in the 1940s, uh, by that time, you know, she wasn't really um, up to singing publicly. I don't think the. I'm getting the impression it's not the website that's the encyclopedic archive. It's you. you we just <laughs> we just need to dial you up when we need to find out about anything. We don't need to go to the website. So there's so many people who know so much more than me. I am uh, I am embarrassed have anybody say that about me there are so many more people well, who are well, more l- listen I, I think that there's two fascinating things to talk about here one is the project the other is you because uh, it, it's such a it's been an interesting journey your life journey to get uh, to become the director of this project or or to be the creator of this project I should say you as I understand it were an artist I mean let's face it from from what I can read uh, from what I can tell knowing a bit about you and having spoken to you you're a bit of a bohemian you were a hippie in the 60s in America, and you and your late partner Leonard were both enamored of Rumi. Uh, what did you really know about Persian culture as a teenager and a young woman in in the United States in the 60s? Well, um, you know, being an artist, of course, I was very aware of Persian miniatures and Persian and the designs of Persian carpets, and and we had many Persian carpets in our house, as many American. Uh, households do and um, and so uh, I knew that much and I knew it was something that fascinated me and I wanted to get to to the essence of it and then um, you know it wasn't hard it wasn't easy to find things about Persian literature uh, in the 60s Um, there was very little around um, but uh, my husband's father had a magnificent library and actually his grandfather was one of the supporters of Arthur Upham Pope so he had a, a, a book uh, by uh, Brown about the about Iran in the library there, and he had also a, tra- a, tra- a selected translation by Nicholson of Rumi's poems, and so that was kind of what uh, you know had this was the spark. <laughs> And then we found copies of it, uh, of, of the Masnavi in, in the famous Weiser's bookstore in Greenwich Village, which was the go-to place for everything spiritual, which unfortunately closed. So, but, so you did not, uh, you, you didn't have family in Iran. You didn't even know anybody in Iran. Obviously, there's no Facebook and Instagram at that point, so you're not on social media in Iran. Uh, no. So you're this non-Iranian woman named Jane with your partner Lenny, and and you got and you, you're working at an antique shop in New York by the late 60s. 
60s. Then you go to Vienna. I mean, I don't know if you can do this in a brief form, but how is it you guys end up in Iran studying in Shiraz in the early 1970s? Well, um, I was in Vienna, and then Lenny got called for the draft, so he came to Vienna to, to join me. And then from there, you know, we hitchhiked to Greece, and then from Greece we went, we went to Iran. And um, we had had some correspondence with um, uh, uh, Dr. Nass and other people in, um, in Iran. And, you know, they said, you know, come along. There's a lot to be done here. And so um, uh, first Lenny went and then I followed a, a couple of weeks later. And um, we, we, wanted, we wanted to stay, you know, we wanted to stay for a long time to get immersed in, in Persian literature and the Mastavi and Divan Shams. And there was only one way, there was only two ways to do that. One was to get a work visa or to get, uh, to uh, have a, a student visa. And of course, we had no talent that anybody would want to hire us for. So we, wanted, so we went back to the university and we got enrolled in the university and we started as matriculating students at Pallavi University studying language and literature. And of course, at Pallavi University, although all the classes were taught in English, not language and literature, they were taught in Persian. And there was no special program for Persian for, Persian for foreigners. So we had to jump in with the Iranians and it would be like, you know, coming from from uh, Iran and going to Oxford and, and you know, studying uh, Shakespeare and right. not barely knowing the alphabet. Yeah, I mean, this is, well, first of all, this the getting there part is interesting to me too. I mean, I guess you're sort of what we would in contemporary parlance call backpackers, right? So you're sort of backpacking around or uh, and and you're in Greece and you're in Turkey and you're, you've, you've talked about wanting to find the essence of what was drawing us east. So you're Westerners, but you're drawn to the East as one of the reasons you end up in Iran. Is it fair to say you found the essence of what you was drawing you there when you got to Iran? Well, I found that the essence can be found in Persian literature and in Persian music. And uh, certainly the Persian music, uh, it it will take, it it transports you. And um, so um, I, I, I wouldn't be so proud as to say that I have found the essence, but uh, I, I know it's there and I know it's reachable. How would you describe your experiences as a young American in Iran in the 1970s? Well, it was, uh, first of all, we lived with a family and had almost no uh, contact with people who spoke English. Um, and uh, so we were immersed in the culture. And it was a very traditional family with, you know, you had Hala John and Bibi John and, and all the Naves and Natijes and everything like that. It this is in Shiraz, very, yeah? Yes. Yeah. And, um, you know, a very traditional way of life. And so we, we just were totally immersed in it. I mean, you know, whenever I go back to Iran, I, I just feel like I'm going home. It's, I feel like, you know, it's, I feel very much that that's my, uh, you know, spiritual, uh, uh, world there and um, so despite the fact that you didn't speak the language or had never didn't know anybody there or had no lineage you felt at home in iran pretty much when you from the time you arrived yes i mean yeah more or less um, but you see we, we we were just totally 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 focused 
on you know being able to understand uh, Molana and the culture and the music and everything like that. We just threw ourselves you know 100% into it. Um, you know we started learning Persian with Divana Shams. We didn't go to some kind of, I mean, the you know, Divana Shams of Molana, you know, we look up all the words in the dictionary and then we go to visit this friend who was a Darvish and he was very good at the interpretation of Persian poetry. And, and we'd spend our for Thursdays and Fridays at his house working on the Masnavi and Divana Shams with him. And, you know, we were just, that was, that was what we were aiming for. And that's what we went there for. And we kept our focus on that. Of course, I don't want to make this sound too extraordinary there, because there was, uh, Iran was a cosmopolitan place in, in uh, certainly in Tehran or some of the big cities by the 1970s. And, and there were oh, yeah. uh, international yeah. folks from all over the place. But with that said, uh, h- how many non-Iranians were in the university with you that you were, where you were studying in Shiraz? Not many, not many. And they, there weren't any real matriculating students. Um, there were some people who would come on, uh, one or two who would be exchange students, and they would come for a semester and go. And we did have one or two professors. One actually taught music, and one taught um, uh, sociology, I think. And, uh, and then, of course, Richard Fry was there when we were there, the, you know, the famous Richard Fry who was doyen of Persian uh, history, and uh, we were lucky to be there. We had, it was, Palavi University was really a fantastic university because we were on the sort of uh, the travel uh, route of all the people who had Fulbrights. And so we had so many really remarkable professors there at Palavi University where you wouldn't have had that same exposure if you had gone to an American university because you would just have the professors that were hired at that university. You wouldn't really have all these professors from all over the place coming who were specialists on various aspects of, of Persian culture and literature. And what do you think the other students and some of the the teaching staff made made of you this this uh, blonde American girl who had become so enamored of and fascinated with uh, uh, Rumi and Persian culture? Well, they were all very uh, uh, very uh, kind and generous to us, and you know. My husband got the reputation for being that crazy American that goes around quoting Rumi all the time because he was just memorizing it all the time. And wherever he went in a taxi or whatever, he was constantly, you know, pulling out quotes from Rumi. And so he sort of became a character in the, in the town there. <laughs> And um, and the, the professors were all very nice and very kind to us, and and um, I think that I'm, one time we almost got kicked out of the university uh, because um, uh, my husband used to speak his mind uh, quite a lot, and uh, he said something um, uh, that was not favorable against the Shah, and I guess somebody reported us. And so he he got taken in by the Savak for a few hours, and then they let him out. But they, at that point, they tried to kick us out of the university. We didn't know about it and until um, uh, later. And the head of admissions said, no, no, I'm not going to kick these people out. One day, they're going to be great scholars and have great and do a great service to our country. And unless you can prove to me that they've done some treacherous thing, I'm not going to kick them out. 
So we didn't get kicked out because hmm. we had gotten kicked out of the university. We wouldn't have a visa and we'd have to leave. And so Iran at this point, of course, is not uh, its not yet the axis of evil. It's not the, the, en- the enemy of the West. Uh, if anything, there's, a, there's these fine relations between the United States and, and Iran as a product of the fine relations between the Shah of Iran and, and, uh, and the U.S. administrations. If nothing else, it was probably an exotic place to, in the, through the prism of the eyes of a lot of Americans. What did your parents or what did your family back in, in the West think uh, when you said, well, we're staying in Iran for a few years? I think my mother was kind of shocked. Uh, Lenny's father was not uh, because uh, his, Lenny's father himself was an explorer. He went to the North Pole with Admiral Byrd and went on uh, headhunting expeditions in Ecuador and stuff like that. So he wasn't at all. And also the family was a Jungian family. They, they spent their summers in, in, in Zurich with Jung. And so he had he he respected that uh, that we were that we were pursuing our inner um, our inner uh, journey. Um, my mother she was much more practical, and I think she didn't say much. But I my sister later on told me that she was not very uh, wasn't over the moon about it. But you know we were so far away there wasn't much they could do about it. And even there was no we didn't even have a telephone. You know there was just letter writing. And you know how 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 angry can you get in writing a letter? You know, I can't really say <laughs> right. much. <laughs> well, actually, <laughs> there's there's a there's a long history of uh, of profoundly angry letters that have been written. But uh, but I, I get your point. So Jane, would it be fair to say the revolution was the reason you left Iran? It was that the. Uh, Certainly, we never would have left Iran if it hadn't been for the revolution, uh-huh. and that's because you know we—it was our home, both spiritually and physically and and emotionally, um, and we never would have left. And I'll never forget the day we had to leave. I mean, we left right after Ashura. The family we were living with said that, uh, you know, it's getting dangerous. You should, for Ashura, because it was going to be huge de- demonstrations for Ashura. Well, you, you, so you're still in Shiraz by 79, yeah? Yeah, uh, yeah. well, uh, we left in December of 79. Okay. And so they told us to go stay with family friends outside of, uh, outside of the, uh, the city because they were afraid that, you know, people might, you know, they knew that we were there. People knew, everybody knew where we lived. And they thought that, you know, there might be some hysterical people that could make trouble. So we, and they said that, and then once the airport's open, just go straight to the airport and, you know, go. And Iran, uh, Shiraz was by then a, a, an international airport, but only flights to the Gulf. And so the uh, gardener, who had also a little taxi um, truck business, um, he came to pick me up, and I was delegated to go to the bank and get all of our money out and buy the tickets and, and everything. And I was just crying hysterically. And he was and he was sitting there behind the wheel lecturing me, no, you must be strong. You must be like a darvish. You must be. You must, be, you know, be like a mountain. And then all of a sudden, I turned around, and he's crying hysterically too. <laughs>
There were some Americans who stayed, obviously. Was it very clear to you that you had to leave? or were, were, I mean, you obviously had mixed feelings about it by the sounds of it, but was it clear that this was something that you had to do? Yes, it was, because after a while we did get jobs at the Iran-American Society, and, um, and, and although our colleagues were all friends of ours, you know, when the revolution started heating up in, in, the, in 1977 and 78, um, uh, they no longer were speaking to us. And the same with the students. They wouldn't ha- speak to us anymore. And um, when all the demonstrations were happening, you know, you would be very afraid to get caught in one of them because, you know, you could get, you know, actually physically hurt. And rumors were going around that, you know, um, my, uh, Lenny was, uh, my husband Lenny was, uh, was a spy. And the proof that he had that they had that he was a spy was that he carried an old leather briefcase and had round glasses. And they didn't know that that old briefcase was because we were students and didn't have any money and he was using his father's old briefcase. <laughs> Nothing spy-like about it. <laughs> but, you know, there were rumors around that, you I, know. I'm really interested in this turn that things take. Uh, I mean, we, it's not the focus of this interview, obviously, but uh, that things taken around 78, 79 with the, the student movement and the, and the revolution. Uh, you know, we had um, Homa Sarshar on the program a, a month ago or so, and and she, uh, she of course, was, you know, a, a journalist for many years in Iran, and she was working at Kehan, and she tells this horrible story of, of this very sad story of how, uh, as the revolution is amping up in the, uh, I guess, in the fall of 79, maybe, um, she, they, no, or, or maybe even 78, sorry, 78. sorry, 78. Yeah. 78. She, uh, she has an experience where the same people that she's been working with for years suddenly shun her and say, why would we listen to a Jewish woman? And, you know, and, and I guess the people uh, turned. Yeah. Um, and, they, they, and, so and, they know you at this point, they know that you're not mm-hmm. the enemy, but I guess just because you were American, you became the enemy. No, it was like a mass hysteria had taken over the country, and the anger was such that you could actually physically taste it in the air. And you know, if you had any kind of sensitivity, it was really quite um, quite amazing. Um, and you know, people just completely turned. You know, all of a sudden you'd see a, a group of uh, uh, club wielding uh, people running down the sm- streets, smashing everything in their way. And, you know, it was scary and it was wild. And also, you know, we have these rumors going around. Uh, and, of course, the, the family that we were living with, they were very well connected and they had their ear to the ground. So they knew more about what was being said about us than we did. And they were very protective of us. <laughs> You end up in England and you become an editor and translator at an Iranian publisher in England in the 80s and 90s. Uh, did, did translating different works and manuscripts whet your appetite for 
going on to create something like the Golestan project years later? Um, I don't think it really did. No, because those were um, um, metaphysical texts, um, you know, Sufi texts that I was working with um, on. And uh, so it was a totally different thing. But um, what happened was, you know, um, well, of course, my husband was passionate about Persian music. He even studied Persian Avaz for 12 years um, and, um, uh, and knew all of Meaning the Meaning to sing or, to, or the, the history of it? To sing, to sing, to oh, sing. Wow. <laughs> he knew all the gouches and everything, and he could sing them. Gopal Goni came to our house one time, and he sang for him. And uh, I mean, he, my husband sang for Gopal Goni. I mean, he didn't have a beautiful voice, but he sang very, very proper. He sang all the wow. gouches correctly. And we had a small collection of tapes that we'd brought with us from Iran, and of course, they were precious. And um, uh, and so when the iPod came out and, every, and was possible to digitalize these things, you know, I began digitalizing his collection uh, so that, you know, it wouldn't get, you know, destroyed and, uh. and he could have it, carry it with him wherever he went. And then and we had some tapes of the Goha. And, um, you know, on, on, the, uh, on the Internet, you could, you know, put, type in the name of something and, and all of the uh, discography of it would come down so you didn't have to type it in, you know. And so I was doing that. And I, when I got to the Goha ones, I, there was nothing. Um, at that time, uh, you know, you typed in Goha on the, uh, on the Internet and nothing came up except um, uh, an article in the uh, Encyclopedia Ironica. Nothing came up. And so I was kind of surprised at that, knowing what a huge, profound program the Golha was, you know, uh, that uh, Daoud Pirnia had, had invented. Okay, okay, hang, hang on, so, slow down. <laughs> First of all, you speak very quickly, and I, I, I'm trying to keep up with you. And I, wanna, I don't want to make sure everybody keeps up with you. So, first of all, the reason why I brought up the being working as an editor and translator in England is even though you leave Iran, and even though you don't actually launch the Golha project till 2005, you know, 25 years later, uh, you never really leave Iran in terms of the work oh. you do is always you're basically still immersed in Persian culture and wanting to be part of things yes that would be correct exactly right? exactly and even now almost i have more of my friends and acquaintances are uh, persian than than english or american and then since the golha programs and and that era of iranian radio becomes such a um big part of what you're going to do i'm very i'm curious how aware you were um not as a historical artifact but as as just a program that was on the radio in the evening uh when you were in iran did you remember the golha program from when you were uh in shiraz Oh, definitely, definitely, because, you know, in Iran, it was it was a cult program. People would, you know, make sure they got home in time to listen to it on the radio. And um, and the family that we live with listened to it all the time on the radio. We listened to it with them uh, on the radio. And, you know, I mean, I consider it as one of the most important um, cultural events in 20th century Iran, because you see all of the other things like the school of music that Vaziri and Haliri did and, and, and all of the other things, they only were uh, affected a small part of the population. But the radio went into every village 
particularly when uh, when transistor radio came along in in the 60s and every village could hear this poetry and hear this music the highest quality poetry the highest quality music and it transformed um, their opinion of their own culture you know uh, it really gave them gave them a sense of self uh, self right and self self worth I did a highly unscientific survey of uh, <laughs> a, a, a near meaningless case study by asking six or seven people about the Golha programs. So people obviously who are in the diaspora now, uh, well, not obviously, I guess I could call my relatives in Iran, but uh, but I, I asked some folks uh, here in the diaspora about, uh, about the Golha programs. Um, a couple of people, one person in the 20s hadn't heard of them. Uh, one person in the 30s had heard of them but didn't know much of them. Uh, the people who were in their 40s and 50s and 60s that I asked. Uh, there was a there was an interesting array of opinion. One person was extremely nostalgic about it in a in, in, in a dewy eyed way, like oh, it was beautiful. I I remember this. We would sit around as a family. We would listen. Another person thought that it was quite cheesy. Uh, said oh oh that thing. It was it was I, you know that was the kind of thing that our parents would make us listen to, but it wasn't. And another person said they were boring, and another person said they were important. So suffice to say, there was. I guess, like any kind of program, there was a there was a wide range of opinion about them. Um, so uh, this is where I want to get to the importance of them, because preserving and excavating the contents of a radio program, even one that would air on, say, BBC over a twenty-three year period, would seem relatively benign. Why is this such an important starting point for understanding Persian culture and cultural history? Well, um, there are over seven hundred poets from a thousand years of Persian poetry introduced in the Golha. And you have all of the greatest virtuosos of the 20th century perform on them. And they also reorchestrated um, a lot of the tunes from the from the Constitutional Revolution, like Mora Sahar and other songs of Aref and Sheda. And, um, and, and they were responsible for keeping them in in the in the public sphere and then they also uh reorchestrated a lot of tunes from the regional music and uh, folk tunes and things like that and you see now of course we have all of these different types of media that we can access but then there was only just the radio right. and maybe maybe you know uh going to the cinema once a week and so the radio played a huge important part in people's lives and um, and the fact that it was so pervasive in the culture that you know everywhere you could hear it, and on the programs they would describe everything. For instance, they would they would they were very careful to say who the musicians yes, were, and yes. who the composer was, and who the poet was. And so this was ve- they this was very important because it wasn't just sort of listening to something; it was an education. Um, Does it uh, surprise you that I got that uh, diversity of opinion about it? No, no, it doesn't. It doesn't. I mean, there's, you know, all different types of uh, opinion about these things. And, you know, everybody's certainly, uh, their opinion is worth respect. But, you know, for me, I, I personally don't 
believe in being judgmental about any kind of performing art. I think they're all all uh, worthy of uh, of their place and their respect. And and I I think it's you know you're missing out on a lot if you if you want to if you're dismissive about being judgmental about right. about uh, 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 performing arts. Jane, who you mentioned David Pirnia. Who, yeah. who was he and what was his mission as the brainchild of the Golha radio programs? Well, Dawid Pirnia came from an aristocratic and very important um, political family. Um, his father was um, a prime minister several times, and, um, and he himself was uh, assistant prime minister for some time. And then uh, in the 1950s, um, uh, he retired from, from political life. And, but he was a great patriot. He had a great, and his father wrote the most comprehensive history of ancient Iran, which was, so he felt he wanted to make a contribution to, he wanted to do something. And, you know, he, he was also unhappy about the turn that, that music was taking in Iran. There was an awful lot of influence of Arabic and Indian and Turkish uh, themes in uh, in Persian music, and the and the and the Persian was getting watered down, and so he felt he really wanted to strengthen that, and so um, he, he that was one of his missions, and the other was that he he wanted to make sure that the that the artists got the respect that they deserved, um, because you know in Iran um, even. Even before the revolution, um, a, a artists were not well respected, um, and you know, a girl who wanted to uh, perform in the theater or in the cinema, you know, her brothers or her cousins might threaten her life, uh, and and uh, uh, men who, who who would walk on the street with their with their instruments would be attacked and have stones thrown at them, and um, and this went on. You know, this is this is was normal activity. And so he wanted to give them the respect that they needed. And I think it, he did because, you know, through the Golha, they, instead of being called uh, minstrels, um, uh, the artists began to be called maestros. Mm. And, um, and, it, and it made a big difference. It really made a big difference in the whole way that people looked at the social importance and social position well of, well in in retrospect having just had uh farid zolon on the program not too long ago and this um really difficult and an unhappy history of lack of compensation for copyright for creative works for uh creative content and for publishing uh that continues to this day it 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 to for there to have been this program that would not only ex explain what the what the music and poetry was but where it came from and give notice of who the artists who the composers were uh would be so incredibly valuable yeah, yeah. I mean, they, they, it, it made people think that well, yeah, these people do reserve some kind of respect. Their names do deserve to be remembered, 
Um, but you know, this whole thing of uh, I listened to the Zoland interview, and, and and that's also one of the main reasons why I started the the Golestan project was because as I was doing the the Goha project, I interviewed many of the artists. Of course, many of them have now passed away, but you know, it was so um, evident to me that they all felt a sense of deep brokenheartedness and rejection. And these were great virtuosos of massive talent and made massive contributions to uh, you know, Persian culture. And I felt so sorry for that. And I felt that we have to do something that their contributions are uh, preserved and respected and, and they're given credit for their amazing works that they that they gave to the country i mean these people they lived for their music they mm. lived for their poetry mm. they breathed it <laughs> You would have heard me ask Fahid Zalon this, but let me put the question to you, uh, because uh, uh, there's probably no one definitive answer anyway, but, but why didn't, I mean, given that, look, your life has become about exploring the wealth of, of culture, music, poetry, etc., from Iran, certainly in the 20th century, why by the, say, by the 1970s, isn't there some kind of, I mean, pre-revolution, because post-revolution, we can, we can blame it all on, you know, I mean, uh, art not being respected, certain kinds of art, music being outlawed, whatever. But, but even by the 1970s, why wasn't there a sturdier infrastructure, uh, an institutional, a system to support and compensate creators of, of music and, and poetry and, and art and the written word? Well, um, the central government didn't really seem to, I mean, yes, there were the Shiraz festivals and, and like the Tus festival and, and, you know, there was the Rudeki Hall, but it was kind of like all show. It wasn't really, it wasn't really a, a deep, profound, um, you know, interest in, in keeping the lights on for these people. And it was mostly considered, you know, just as something that entertains. It doesn't, you know, have a, have a profound cultural um, contribution. And also in the film industry, you did have, um, a, a, towards the mid to late 70s, you did have a certain effort where people were trying to get uh, together to have a movement to, you know, um, fight the various censorship and the, and the various taxes that were being imposed on performers and theaters and producers and things like that. But in the music industry, no. I mean, first of all, a lot of it was produced by the radio, and then there were private concerns, but it was very just, um, certainly the people who were owned the um, companies that were producing the music, they were more interested in, in just the financial aspects of things. They weren't really interested in cultural uh, structure. But don't you think that there is such a paradox that the that the culture, that the people who, and I'm talking about us, that so value Mulana as part of the very essence of who we are, 
don't then have <laughs> have in place a, a way of recognizing or uh, um, compensating the contemporary uh, versions of Mulana? Well, I tell you about Mulana, but you know Mulana was banned in Iran, and and the mullahs said that you uh, shouldn't if you touch the Masnavi, you would have to go do wuzu. You have to do a ritual purification because he was it was haram, and you could only pick it up with with tongs. Uh, and when Fruzan Farah was trying to um, uh, do his edition of the of the Divan Shams, he could not find a single copy in Iran. And his father had one, uh, found one in, in India, and was brought and uh, brought it for him. So you know, you're talking about something, you know, at that you know this is kind of endemic, um, and it goes back a long way. Mm. And um, and uh, I think, as I mentioned to you, musicians in the pre 20th century and into the early 20th century, they were considered indentured servants. And you had and you had also these um, uh, storefronts, uh, which were called Shadamani or the the uh, the place of happiness. And you would go there and you would hire, you know, musicians or or, or, or a troupe of, of, of jugglers or whatever, entertainers for your party or your wedding or whatever it was. And so it was really kind of like, you know, they weren't, there wasn't that respect. And, and if you don't have that respect, then, you know, who cares? You know? <laughs> When you set out to uh, create the, you launched the Golha project by 2005. Uh, Given that it, it is not possible, it would not have been possible, that is, before your project, to find all the Golha archives in one place, hence the need for your project, how did you go about finding all the bits and pieces of Persian broadcast and music culture that, that you could showcase on the Golha site? Tell me about the process of recovering these programs uh, and with a regime in power that had declared music un-Islamic after the revolution. Well, um, uh, yeah, that is true. There was a sort of, you know, the ladies aren't allowed to be, have their voices on the on the thing. But you know, I- Iran is a country of 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 contrasts, and you know, there's so many everything, any anything can happen in Iran. You know, it's not it's not monolithic, and um, and so uh, uh, you know, I um, uh, first I had had. A, Dear friend, Professor William Chittick, he spent 12 years in Iran, and he had recorded quite a few of them on reel-to-reel tapes from the radio. And so he gave me his collection. And then I went to Iran, and, um, and I met lots of people there who were fanatic collectors. And so basically, I would do a swap. Whatever I had that they needed, I would give them, and they would give me what they needed. Wow. And How I, did you find these people? Word of mouth, word of mouth. You know, you find one, and then one tells you about wow, another one. Wow! And, um, and then, and then also, um, you know, and wait I a second, anywhere. just just a second. The, you found I, I I didn't catch his name. I'm sure he's a, the the guy who spent 12 years in Iran. Uh, the, he's, a, he's a famous the, Islamic studies uh, professor okay. at, at Stony Brook in New York. Okay, I'm sorry, I don't know him, but but. Uh, this guy recorded the Golha programs on reel to reel. In yeah, uh, th- that's amazing. What was he doing that for? 
Because he loved them. And so he could just play them back. It's like a, yeah, yeah, it's yeah, like yeah. the way you would do it on a cassette tape recorder by the 1980s. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, wow. That's I mean, a, there were people, people had whole, whole, uh, you know, uh, walls of reel-to-reel tapes that they had collected. And um, not just of the Gold Hall, of other things. And, you know, they would hook up the reel-to-reel tape, they, uh, the reel-to-reel tape recorder to the, to the radio and they would record it for themselves. Um, and because um, uh, there wasn't, you know, there wasn't an industry of, of uh, a lot of these things. They weren't recorded on, um, some of them later on were recorded on 45s, but, but they weren't recorded on, on um, uh, records, you know, uh, 78s or 33s, not many of them. And, um, and there was no uh, way to buy them anywhere. So you had to do that. You had to record it for yourself. And then I did have collaboration with um, with the Museum of Music in Iran. They had there was a, one of the most famous collectors of Persian music, Goshen uh, Ibrahimi. Uh, they had his collection and they had digitalized it. And eventually, I was able to do a swap with them. And I should mention, I, I think I read somewhere that you you had some trepidation at first about approaching the government uh, in Iran about uh, seeing if there was any kind of archives that they might have and that indeed that they were actually, the, the folks at this uh, the museum you just mentioned were actually quite welcoming. Is that Was that the case? Well, um, uh, that was that story is more about the radio. Ah. Um, uh, I mean, it took me two years to convince the Museum of Music to, to swap with okay, me. Okay, so they weren't that welcoming. Yeah, uh, but I never went, to, I, I, although I had the name of the man who was the head of the radio uh, from the very beginning, somebody told me about him. But everybody said to me, don't go there because they're only going to, you know, make trouble for you and they're not going to help you. And so they're going to be unco- uh, uncooperative. And so I didn't. But then I had found out that uh, Mr. Pierna had a notebook. And so I figured if I could find that notebook, um, that would help to confirm give us a confirmed list of the exact number. And so I figured, well, the radio is not going to be really that uh, upset about a book. So I contacted the, um, uh, the man who was head of the radio at the time, and, um, and he was very kind to me and, and very generous. And, um, and then he called in the head of the archive. They have two archives. One is a, um, uh, a, a picking archive that they use, and the other is a, 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 you know, an archival archive that is not touched. And so he called in both of the heads of both of those, and they said to me, I want you to help this lady and do whatever you can to help her. And so um, I gave them a list of what I had, and, and they gave me a list of what they were missing. And we So this was, you're, so you're in Iran, right? Yes, yes. And yes, this yes. is in the 2000s? This would be um, probably maybe 2000. Um, uh, 11 or 12 or something like that. Okay. 11, and, and just, curi- 11, just out of curiosity, when you go back and forth to Iran, do you tell them what you're doing uh, when you arrive at the airport? Do you say, I'm I'm, I'm doing this kind of work, uh, archival work, or, or, or do you just not bother with that? Well, I, nobody really asked at that point. At that point, you could easily get um, a, a, a tourist visa and you could stay for a month and you could, and you could renew it 
uh, up to two or three times. Okay. So, it, you know, I didn't have to justify it to anybody. The rules have changed now. So no one ever questioned you and said, what, what, what are you doing? Why are you doing this work with the No, work? everybody was very kind and very generous. Uh, I never had any, any kind of, you know, um, antagonistic uh, encounters at all. Everybody was extremely kind and extremely generous. Do you suspect that the government in Iran has any issues with what you're doing or just they sort of let you be? I don't know. I, I mean, I would I would have no way of knowing that. I just know that they've always been kind and generous. Well, that, that's the way you know, I guess. <laughs> Nobody's caused any trouble for you. You know, there's so much interest in this. In the it, when you so you preside over the digitizing of the Golha. And of course, you know what? I'm not doing anything political. Right. You know. Right. I mean, I'm totally nothing to do with politics. And you know, it, it's that's I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm, I hate politics. Right. So you know, I'm not going to. I have nothing to do with that. Um, you know, I think they sense that. I don't know. But in any the, case, the, I've the, never the proof that. is in the pudding, though, in terms of the interest. When you launched in 2005, is it true that the website crashed when you first went live because there was crashed. so much interest? <laughs> crashed. We 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 did the um, opening of it um, in a conference in Istanbul, International Iranian Studies Conference in Istanbul, and the BBC. Um, uh, I think it was, maybe it was Radio Fardo, or maybe it was uh, BBC Radio. They were there and they were recording things, and I guess you know they recorded that I, we were doing this, and um, and the, the everything crashed. And, and and the um uh and then you know of course then the computer programmers were able to get more capacity and whatever i mean we we hadn't expected there'd be so much we had over th we have had over three million people from all over the world and you know you can look up on google they show you where and almost every country in the world except for a few countries in africa there's somebody listening to the goha wow in recent years to expand your ambitions to the Golestan project now. So right, yeah. t tell us about this. Well, the Golestan project encompasses all the performing arts of the 20th century. So we begin about, um, I would say, 18, 1880 and we go to 1980. And um, it's, uh, you know, from uh, wax cylinder recordings to the uh, 78s and the 45s, various radio programs, and then all the films that were produced in Iran pre-1979 and um, regional music and archival recordings done by scholars and things like that. And then also we had, and some uh, uh, private archives that people have given us um, uh, of recordings that they made, private recordings of artists and things. And then also we have uh, just now, I'm just winding up a project that I had a grant from the British Library for, which is scanning the um, performance arts journals in Iran 
before pre-1979 and uh, we're hoping what now we're, we're in the process of of indexing them so that you know you are looking for you know particular articles about you know let's say gopaigani or, or gugush or uh, or if Tazvini or Sheda or something like that, you can you'll be able to find it without having to leaf through page by page all of the uh, various journals. Okay, so let me play devil's advocate here. Uh, uh, this is and again, <laughs> let me emphasize this disclaimer that this is not me, my position, but uh, but I think that if they were being honest, there may be people listening who might have this position, which is to say. Why is it imperative to preserve an archive of Persian performing arts and literature? What what do those outside of Iran say in the diaspora gain from consuming the Golestan project? I mean, obviously, for historical reasons, we would want to archive any arts or creations from anywhere in the world. What is your answer when someone says, what do we gain from the preservation of these Persian art forms? Well, you know, um, no, nothing is built in a vacuum. So... The Persian culture, it builds on itself over the years and over the centuries. And so you can't just take, you know, what you're listening to now on the radio or, or what you're listening to at a concert out of context and say that it has no connection to the, all, of the, all, of the, all of the film directors now who are, you know, have this, you know, Iranian film has become, you know, like really, really the thing internationally. They stand on the shoulders of those that went before them. Right. And the same with the musicians and the same with the, with the writers and the poets. And to say that, you know, these things were all created in a vacuum um, is, is, is crazy. And this is uh, the history of a, of a culture, of a nation, not just, you know, and, and the other thing is that, you know, <laughs> If you if you if you if you listen to these things, people will remember where they were when they first heard that song. That was the first time I saw my wife. That was the first time I on my first date. That was they. It will bring back that. That's the nostalgic part of it. But also, you know, there's also so much to be um, learned about how. Uh, Iran and Iranians were uh, dealing with modernization, with dealing with with the outside world and their view of the outside world and how they were integrating that into their own um, styles and their own and their own um, uh, culture. And so this is it's you know it's it's all very important. I mean, it would be like saying you know well let's just throw out uh, uh, Beethoven and 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 and, right, uh, right, and right. Uh, well, I don't know Schumann and, and Schubert and and um, and uh, 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 even the the swing bands and 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 everything else. What do we need all that for? But you know that it's part of the culture. And um, I, I suspected you, this question would get you going. My cunning, pl <laughs> my cunning plan worked. Uh, <laughs> sorry, what, what? sorry, Grant. I'm very sorry. <laughs> no, it's, it was perfect. It was, but so, what has it been like trying to get funding and support for these projects? I mean, there's clearly the interest. There's clearly the love. But what about resourcing the support, financial support from the Iranian community? Well, um, uh, uh, most of the support I've gotten has been from uh, Iranian uh, organizations or Iranian community, but it's, you know, dribble, dribble. Um, uh, there have been one or two people who have been very generous, but mostly it's, you know, really tiny amounts. 
Um, but you know, everything counts. Every tiny amounts you, they add up to big amounts after a while. Um, but what we really do need, and I'm really very passionate about this, is we really need to create some kind of, um, you know, foundation, a, you know, a well-endowed uh, foundation. Uh, to not just to preserve these things that I'm talking about, but also I, every day people, not every day, but quite often people contact me from all over the world telling me about an archive that they have and asking me if they will save, I will save it for them. Mm. And, you know, and we should be able to say yes. let these things be thrown into the dustbin of history you know this one person who spent 18 years recording all of the songs in all the villages of the Zagros from uh, Kermanshaw to to uh, to Fars and he has in this massive archive about 18 about 800 cassettes and he contacts me will you help me you know um, you know, and, and people like this from all over, you know, and we should be able to say yes. We should be able to say, okay, we'll do it. Um, and we should have some place uh, where we can do that and we can make it accessible um, to, you know, the world. And also, I think it's important, you know, per Persian music and Persian culture has been a kind of a sidelined, at best, boutique, um, uh, you know, thing among world uh, culture and world music and and things like that. But, you know, I think it's much more important than that. And I think, it, and I don't think there's any reason why should Indian music be so pervasive everywhere and not Persian? Why should Chinese or African uh, be more uh, prominent than Persian? It's only because it hasn't been accessible. It hasn't been an accessible in an easy way. Yes, a lot of people throw things up onto the internet, but they don't tell us who created it, when they created it, and 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 everything like that. Well, it's well, as well, if this was all just sound. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't, nobody made it. Well, Jane, is it ironic or uh, somehow sad that we need to depend on the British Library or a university in California to preserve Persian cultural artifacts? Yeah, it is. It's very sad. When you think of how many um, uh, Iranians there are uh, who, you know, have done so much, particularly in the tech industry, who've done so much for, uh, you know, invented so many things for, for, for Western culture. Well, it's not rocket science. They could do the same thing for Persian, but they don't. I don't, and I don't know, maybe it's all just bottom line. There aren't enough, they can't get a, uh, a payback on it. But, you know, I think that um, uh, uh, there comes a point when you've made enough so you don't have to worry anymore. You have an obligation to give back. And, I mean, that's an American thing. Uh, we, uh, you know, everybody, from when you're a small child, your parents teach you that you have to give back. And you have to, you know, so most of the most of the cultural uh, institutions in America are, are privately endowed. 
they don't wait around for the government to endow them. Some, yes, well, there are some funding agencies that are constantly getting, uh, you know, uh, diminished, like the National Endowment for the Arts and yeah. things like that. Yeah. But mostly it's private endowments. Even the universities, it's mostly private endowments. You know, and, uh, you know, you look on, you can look at the sponsors of any a Philharmonic Hall or any, any you know, uh, thing like that in, in, in America and any bit in Europe, more so in America, though, um, yeah, or any museum. It's all private people. And so I think it's, it's a time where, you know, Iranians have to step up for their own culture. I'm so grateful for the time you've given us today. Uh, let me end with a final question that is... Um, um, maybe it's a bit of a more of a personal one, uh, and, but a very simple one. And you've done some of this already through this interview, but let me ask you straight up. What have you most learned about Persian art, about Persian music, about Persian poetry that you would want to share with the world? Uh, first of all, I'd like to share with Iranians who are living outside of Iran and uh, what you call your diaspora. Don't take it for granted. Put a little time and energy into into getting to know your own culture. It is amazing. It's it's the most important contribution to uh, you know world literature and world music, I think. And it has influenced a lot of music all through the through the West. And and it's much more important than you give it credit for. <laughs> Dig into it a bit deeper, spend some of your time for it, give it what, the, what it deserves, and get closer to it. And um, I'm going to put in a plug for our website. I'm going to say what it is. It's www.golistan.org. And if you want to help out, you can always go there and find out how you could help out. Golistan, G-O-L-I-S-T-A-N. Yes, I, the E was taken by some football place, so I couldn't get the Golistan with an E, which is the more common spelling of it. But uh, So I used the I instead. Uh, it, it's been a pleasure. What, what do you mean by uh, uh, what you call the diaspora? Isn't, it, isn't that the name of, of what? It, diaspora is a word, isn't it? What do you mean by what yeah, I call I the mean, diaspora? But, but this has become a big catchphrase, you know, the Persian diaspora. But, you know, well, it's a, but, not just the Persian diaspora. I mean, people use it for other diasporas as yeah, well. But we're, we're talking about Iran. We're not talking yes. about you know, South America or something yeah. like that. Yeah, and and a lot of these people, you know, they're more um, American or more English than they are Iranian. So you know, yeah. it's hard to say that they're diaspora because they identify more with their with their um, adopted country than they do with their with their with their uh, it's mother. An, it's country. an ongoing battle for those of us who live a, a, a hyphenated existence. Uh, yeah. So that's why I say the so-called diaspora, because, you know, a lot of them are, you know, much more um, American or English or French or whatever than, uh, than they are. And they identify with that more than they do with their own culture, which is really sad. And, um, you know, I think they should all just, you know, uh, get a little bit closer to their roots and, and, and give it the respect that it needs and, and, and the time and invest in, uh, yeah, they give it a person, personal investment. 
Jane Lewis, and we will promote the site. I thank you so much for the time. It's been such a pleasure. I hope I get to come to the tiny village of Eden sometime. You're welcome. Uh, we not, have a not too far from my birthplace. Anytime, anytime. Thank you, Jane. Thank you. It was lovely meeting you. See, over see you in person. Airwaves. Hold on. That's Jane Lewison, the director of the Golha Project and the Golestan Project. You can find them. We'll put the links to both of those websites uh, on our descriptors for each of these interviews. Or if you're listening to us on YouTube, take a look at the screen right now. There it is. We reached Jane in the village of Eden in the UK today. Okay, that was fascinating. That was really interesting. The, the Rook team is reassembling here around the table. Jane Lewison from England. Uh, I, having just completed that interview, I have to say, I, I, I think that there's she has more passion for Persian culture than most Iranians <laughs> I've met. That, uh, that is what a fantastic spirit she has. And uh, what an indictment of many well many of us mm -hmm. you know iranians in iran and in the diaspora for not working harder at preserving this there's only so much you can blame on the the difficulties of our of our recent history i mean this is you know we we can't have it both ways i'm listening to her thinking the amount of time and energy and words that are expressed about how about anti-imperialism and how we don't want you know the British involved and we don't want the Americans involved and we want a, a, a secular free Iran and all of that and yet who's the where's the funding coming from for preserving the last century of Persian culture the British <laughs> the British government I mean it's really a, a kind of embarrassing uh, that that's part of the takeaway I mean I don't want to take anything away from the 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 amazing work that that Jane is doing it's just just what I'm thinking about uh, towards the end of that interview is where, where we went with that um, I didn't want to depress her by but this is a uh, um, it's it's quite startling, Shia. Your your thoughts. I I could see you through this interview. Uh, this Golha project. I mean, you were. I was barely alive when this the by the time this thing ended in the in the nineteen nineteen seventy nine it ended. Yes. But but uh, so you weren't alive. But I can only imagine that you know of this radio show and that it was close to your heart. Some of those songs we were hearing. Yes, actually, the um, when you listen to Golha, it starts with kind of this sentence in برنامه گلها به شما ارائه داده می شود توسط هنرمندان بلا بلا and this sound is you want to translate that? Uh, this, uh, this show brought to you by these artists right and this, this that voice is so nostalgic for me you mm. know yeah and damage uh, can Jane yeah really and I do nothing about the Golha in my life and I'm so ashamed of because I'm I, I my feel is music and I did nothing and it's really precious you know it's a very important archive that we have about our history and I I feel ashamed actually. the fabulous Keon uh, 
I'm I'm very I'm fascinated by this woman. She it's it's interesting when an American, a non-Iranian has such a huge interest in our culture, in our um, history. I mean, I almost feel embarrassed that, you know, I was like, why am I not doing what she's doing, you know? And it's it's interesting, her point about why should, for example, Indian or Spanish music be more prominent than Iranian music? And the reason for that is that, is that it's not accessible to people. And it's so true. Like, my white friends always ask, oh, so what is Iranian music? What are Iranian films? It's like, oh, my God, how, where do you start with that? Right. So right. it's interesting. Captain Reza? I was telling Shia, I'm like, during the interview, I was like, I'm taking a second look at my own point of view of Iran, the Iranian culture and everything. And for you guys, it's a little different. And it mm. was interesting when she challenged you on the diaspora <laughs> and then you questioned her. And she said, no, but a lot of people who were born and raised in, 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 in out, yeah, what you call the diaspora. Yeah, and I'm like, right. well, what do you call it? <laughs> 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 it's like, you, know, you guys identify as like essentially Canadian or American more so than anything else. But for me, it's, it's, it's more shame, a little more shameful because and I'll tell you why. Because I was brought up in Iran. I grew up there um, for the most part, for the majority of my childhood at least, and then moved here when I was a teenager. But I tried to fit in so badly when I moved to Canada. And this and, uh, made a conscious effort to try to distance myself from, from anything Iranian to try to fit in because I thought this is the right thing to do. Yeah. And it was eye-opening. It was truly eye-opening. But you shouldn't feel shame in that no, because that that is uh, and, uh, and I'm loath to be nice to any of you. You know that, but uh, <laughs> but none of you, nobody should feel shame because it is hard. Yeah. It is you. You know, you came here first of all. You came here alone. Right. You know, you did not even. Some of us came with family. I mean, you came here alone, and um, you did what you had to do to assimilate to get work here. To mm -hmm. so you cannot feel that shame. But now you can. You can look back, and yeah. and we all. You know, we have to step up, right? I mean, we're trying to do that with this show, but and she's trying to do that with the the Goldstone project. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, uh, I I I told that I feel ashamed. But you are right. Actually, we are here, and we have to, as a person, we have to even a drop inject a drop of our culture into this yeah um, yeah 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 i so. loved how she ended that too she's like it, the last w you asked her for her last comments about you know what, what advice she would give and she said it's time for iranians to step up for their culture Sh iranians should get closer to the roots and get familiar with it because it's so like don't take it for granted this is so important and it's not I just about that. us sharing i mean that's why you know, not to bring this back to Rook constantly, but the, yeah. but the, doing the show in English, it's not just about us sharing our culture with each other, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. It's it's because she's right. What you know, uh, I was in. Um, I mentioned Cambodia on the last show. I, I love Southeast Asia. I have a lot of friends in Cambodia. It's a beautiful country. A wonderful people. I remember being there a couple of years ago when Despacito was the big <laughs> song. You know, yes. yeah, and yeah. I'm in a bar in Cambodia. And every person in the bar can sing along to this song in Spanish, even mm -hmm. though they don't speak Spanish. They barely speak English. They speak Khmer, you know. Yeah. And why isn't that true of Iranian songs? Why isn't that true of you know? I mean, why 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 can't you know Air Fawn be that bridge mm -hmm. for us? Part of it is because not only do we not have we not been promoting the culture um, broadly to 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 a broader audience, we were. We were we didn't even want to mention that we're Iranian. For, yeah. you know, I mean, we're we're fighting stereotypes to this day, uh, being perpetrated by you know, I mean, today, last mm -hmm. night, by the president of the United States or yeah. whomever. So it is a it's a challenge, but you know, 
Yeah. Jane's up for it, and so so should we be. It almost wasn't cool to say that you were Rodney. I remember, I'm ashamed to say this, like, you know, as a teenager when random people would ask, oh, what are you? I'd be like, oh, I'm half Spanish, I'm half Italian. Yeah, yeah. But now I'm I, I'm more so proud. I've I think, told this I think story many changed. times when I was a kid. They yeah. would go, Gian, is that French? And I'd kind of shrug, hmm? Yeah, maybe. You know, like, maybe, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully they'll yeah. think I'm French, you know? I think, <laughs> But uh, <laughs> but I think the dialogue's changing now. I'm seeing more people saying, "Yeah, proudly, I'm Persian." Yes. Teenager. Now that yeah. you've turned the corner, a lot of people are. <laughs> well, I, if she's Persian, I, the fabulous no. Keon. No, it's it's cooler almost now. Uh, listen, be. speaking of calling out to our, I have to a, a bit of a mea culpa here because on the last show. I'm segueing away from Jane mm-hmm. Lewis, and you can tell, right? Because we got to get to the letters, yeah. and we have to get that. We have Tina Parsamand, who's uh, waiting for us, uh, and and we're waiting for her. Uh, I'm looking forward to having her on the program in, in a few minutes. Um, uh, Amia Culpa, the last show, I did a call out. I kind of did this haphazardly, I realize now in retrospect, where I said, wherever you are, send us a picture of that you're listening to Rook. And I, I had this, like, idea that somehow without explaining this pedantically like an extreme detail <laughs> that I would get you know that this would just happen you know that people would understand what I so the good news is we got a bunch of people uh, uh, responding uh, the bad news is that uh, it's all over the place uh, yes uh, folks have been sending in pictures of them and their dog and somebody <laughs> going on a hike and somebody you know with headphones on but you're not explaining what they're doing and other people not saying they're where they are so I, uh, I I almost want to retract the invitation, but I do want to say we still want you to send in your, uh, your photos. We are going to build a gallery of this. The intent was to send a picture of yourself listening to Rook and somewhere on it say, I am listening to Rook. Make a little sign or our, our little uh, slogan that we use around the office, which is be Rook, be Rook. You know, you could say put be Rook somewhere on that and tell us where you are so we know where – So. I just want to do a shout out to this guy because Reza showed me this. Uh, <laughs> there's a guy named Anoush in Vancouver. God love Anoush. So you, so you know the instructions. Send us a picture. I am listening to Rook and tell us where you are. So what is this guy? Anoush sends a picture of him making kebab. Right? <laughs> <laughs> like, there's no. I mean, there's so, no yeah. expl- explanation. Turns out Anoush is. He called himself the kebab guy in Vancouver. Ooh, He's known master. the kebab mm. master, and I'm thrilled. To have a kebab master, I mean, it's like Maestro Shajarian, kebab master Anoush, you know. So I, I'm thrilled to have kebab master Anoush listening to the show and interested from Vancouver. But Anoush John, buddy, put down the sikh for a second, step away from the kebab, follow the instructions. You are listening to Rook, be Rook, send us something again. Uh, I'm also looking forward to going to Vancouver. I mean, if you didn't have a million reasons already, now mm. now, now now we know there's a kebab guy, mm-hmm. Anoush the kebab master. I need to learn. I don't know if Anoush has an actual restaurant or. I don't know. We could promote. You know, if this involves getting free kebab, I'm willing to say whatever it takes because the kebab looked great. Oh. It had nothing to do with Rook. <laughs> we would post that picture. This is Anoush, a guy making kebab. It looks like a Getty image. You know, know. it's like an image that we bought off a website somewhere. And he's, his name sounds like it should be the name of a restaurant, Anoush Restaurant. Mm. Well, maybe it is. Kebab. Maybe it maybe is. It I is. Yeah, I looked into it. Yet. I yeah. love some kebab right about right. Now. Mm. All right, so. If you want to send a picture of yourself listening to Rook with the slogan, 
be Rook or I am listening to Rook and tell us where you are. You can send it to info at rookmedia.com, info at rookmedia.com, or uh, just message us on Instagram. That's another way to do it. Our Instagram is uh, is Rook Media at Rook Media, right, that's Captain right, Reza? That's, that's right. What, right. At Rook Media. And if you feel like sending us kebab, that's also welcomed as well. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. 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 In these times of the pandemic, please package some kebab. <laughs> send it I'll to eat us. It. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, Captain Reza, Groovy Shia, the fabulous Keon are around the desk. Let us do the letters of the day. All right, so last Thursday, we reshuffled our entire program and planned a huge uh, tribute episode to the maestro Shajarian after receiving news of his sudden passing that very morning. So we featured interviews with several prominent Iranian figures in the global community to share their thoughts um, and uh, just stories on the maestro and his massive impact on Iranian music and politics. So we're still getting people writing into that specific episode. On YouTube, we have a Kava Ansari. He wrote, Thank you, Jian, for this. Very timely and informative. Mizun Bashi. Thank you, Kava. As well on Instagram, we have Samira Sadation wrote, Thanks, Jian at Rook Media for the amazing tribute to Ostad Shajarian. It brought tears to our eyes and gives us a feeling of pride to live in this world at the same time as he was, shining in the history of Iran. Beautiful. Right on, Samira. Merci. And then we have Diyar Digar. That's an interesting name. I've mm, never yeah. heard of that. Diyar. What does that mean? Diyar means uh, your land, your homeland. Oh, wow. Yeah. Beautiful. Okay. So Diyar Digar wrote, uh, Such a great way you chose to honor Mohammad Reza Shajarian. It helps Iranians to work through his loss and also review how one could unite a nation through his art. Very beautiful. Thank you. All right. So uh, the next user uh, uh, wrote to the specific part of Hamid Nikpay. And uh, in, that, uh, in that part of the episode, he recollects a story that he had with um, Maestro Shajarian of just showing his character. Um, so she wrote to that specific... Let's just explain that. I mean, yeah. people should check it out or they could go to... We have a Rook Minute of that, actually, that right. story that Hamid tells on our Instagram as well. Um, of course, again, this episode is available at our website as it is on all our platforms. But Hamed tells the story of how he's 27 years old. He's a young singer. And Maestro Shajayan is... Uh, they're, they're at a, a house and, mm-hmm. and he says, sing for me. Sing or, or another person says, sing for the maestro and and Hamed's kind of bashful and really I'm not sure if I should and so he sings and after we after a pause <laughs> um Shajarian says that was good and they go on and talk about other things and and then he pulls Hamed aside later on and takes him to another room and gives him some critical uh thoughts and and some suggestions the fact that he wouldn't disrespect or or embarrass Hamed mm-hmm. to do that in front of other people was Hamed's story about how uh how thoughtful this man was yeah just proves how wonderful of a character he had so uh we have Kimya and she has no last name listed on Instagram so just putting it out there Kimya it's of Kimya. no fixed address <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> on Instagram <laughs> said thank you for sharing that was such a beautiful story and it re- truly was it touched me as well, this week on episode 52, we had a feature interview with tennis star Argavan Rezaei, who was once ranked number 15 in female tennis worldwide. So a few people wrote to that specific episode. We have a, on YouTube, we have Elham 
last name listed as D, so Elham D, wrote, Wow, what an interview. So strong. What a symbolic mind, spirit, and character. And clearing her mind by walking solo for 600 kilometers across France. You guys are amazing at picking the right people for interviews. Rook is very entertaining. I agree. By the way, uh, I, I wrote this on Facebook. I'll say it again here. I, that was one of my favorite interviews we've done on Rook. Uh, I, I just... Um, this Iranian French uh, tennis player Akhavan is so inspiring. We 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 talked about it a little yeah. bit after the interview that day. But uh, if you haven't checked that out and you've got one interview that you want to listen to, mm. I, this this one I would really recommend. It caught me off guard because I didn't know too much about her, but her story was just it was like watching a movie. I could mm. it was just it was a novella, like you said. Yes. It was beautiful. Have you been on the courts since then? <laughs> my shoulders Pra hurt. My right shoulder I destroyed my right shoulder and I have this like massive blister. Is this injury. related to playing tennis? It is related to playing tennis. Oh. So I've been wanting to. You wanted to. You've that. been yeah. channeling your Akamon. I've been. I have so much. Power. I want to. Yeah. yeah. All right. Good. Yeah, but good I cannot it. at the time. We're expecting being. a lot from you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, and then we have Cyrus K. Kalatbari wrote, "Just wow, one tough Persian girl doing a 600-kilometer walk, so tough and so strong, but yet with a very soft voice and humble personality." I am so, so proud of her. You just get inspired. Bravo, Aravon. Beautiful. Nice. Thanks, Cyrus. And then we have Sultan BC wrote, I'm glad finally Shaya's goose got bumped, got <laughs> pumped. And that's in reference to last week. Uh, Shaya was trying to say that he got goosebumps, but he said, I got goose bumped. And uh, then he I said, was I was goosebumped. I was goosebumped. <laughs> it was adorable. I loved it. It was this week, by the way. It was it only was on this? Monday. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. It feels like it was so long ago. <laughs> yes. Time flies. Uh, yeah. She doesn't know what day it is. I know. I lose, um, listen, in the, during these times, who knows what day it is? During these anymore. difficult times when yeah. Anush hasn't sent us any kebab yeah, exactly. <laughs> Bob, look at that. It's time for letter of the day. All right. Woo. All right. Today's letter of the day goes to Gila Ibrahimi on mm. YouTube. She wrote, oh, my God, who can imagine there would be such a tough life behind a smiling face celebrity? Well done, Aravon. You seem standing in peace with all these tough backgrounds. You had to grow through all of these because of others' decisions. First, your parents decided to immigrate and you had to face the consequences of looking different in the society where you're supposed to feel like you belong to. And then they decided to make you a champion. And you did it well too. You are a hero. Long live modern heroes of our time. Wonderful. Great. Who, do you want to name this the person again? This was Gila Ibrahimi. Gila Ibrahimi, you have the letter of the day. Thank you, the fabulous Keon. Thank you, Captain Reza. Thank you, Groovy Shia. Well, among the voices and personalities that are resonating in the Iranian diaspora these days is a young woman who is offering regular tidbits of advice on emotions, on relationships, on stress, on health, and doing so 
on Instagram. In fact, she's built a large following in Iran and around the world for her online therapy and insights. And even more charmingly, she does it all with a New Zealand accent in English. Her Persian is impeccable, of course. Tina Parsamand is a psychologist and psychoanalyst who moved from Iran to New Zealand when she was nine years old. After growing up and living much of her 20s in that tiny perfect nation, she decided to return to Iran first on a visit and then ended up staying. Now Tina is a highly in-demand therapist in Tehran and is perhaps best known for her Instagram channel, Insight with Tina Parsa, where her words are resonating across the globe. And right now, Tina Parsamand joins me from Dubai today. Hello. Hi. Hi, Jian. Hi, very nice to have you on the program. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you for, thank for you. doing this. Listen, I know you live in Tehran now, but you're in Dubai um, hoping to get a visa to see your mom in the United States. Do I have that right? Yes, yes, that's correct. And how's that going? Not too bad. Well, still waiting to hear from the embassy, but um, fingers crossed it'll work out okay. What is Dubai like right now in the time of COVID? Um, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. Well, they're quite strict about like wearing masks everywhere, um, which is good. But um, everywhere is open. Restaurants, bars, um, you know, everything's still going. Shopping malls, you just have to wear a mask. So, yeah, it's fine. It's so it, would you say it's similar to Iran? Uh, no. In Iran, nobody really like takes it seriously now. They did used to like at the beginning, but now like not many people wear masks. And, um, really? People are not even wearing masks? No, 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 no. Lots of people are not wearing masks. But here is really strict. Like if you want to get a taxi, only two people are allowed on the taxi. When you go to restaurants, there's a space between like each table. Um, but in Iran, none of that. None of that is happening. <laughs> Okay. All right, well, <laughs> we need to talk to a therapist about this. Oh, wait, we have one. <laughs> so <laughs> I'll have to ask yeah. you about that in a moment. Uh, first of all, what happens to all your clients or, or patients, or I don't know what you call them, when you go away? Um, well, basically, I try not to cancel my sessions because I um, have realized I become a very important part of my clients' lives because... Um, you know, psychoanalysis takes many years. Sure. So some of my clients, we've been together for maybe three, four years and once or twice a week. Um, so I've become a very important part of their life. So I try not to cancel sessions. And with the COVID situation, all of them are working um, online with me via video calls. So I'm, I'm still doing the sessions while I'm on holiday or going away. I try uh, to continue their sessions despite like being overseas. Got it. Tina, yeah. you've, you've said that therapy is hot right now in Iran, which is, which is good to hear, frankly, in the sense that psychologists have often talked about the reluctance of Iranians to seek professional mm -hmm. help when it comes to tough times or stress or even mental illness. Tell me about yeah. therapy being all the rage. How did that happen? I think one is probably social networks because there's lots of psychologists out there on like Instagram, um, you know, informing people it's okay to get therapy. You don't have to have a serious mental illness to go to a, to a therapist. You just might want to have someone you could really talk to about anything. You know, you don't have to filter yourself. So I think social networks has had a positive impact and also 
you know, um, being exposed to some of maybe like the Western culture, um, you know, globalization, people are becoming more open-minded about things, maybe becoming more integrated with the Western culture. So um, I do realize they don't like to call it therapy. They like to call it counseling. So they say we're going to a counselor because we just need counseling regarding like some of our decision makings right. and things like right. that. So we haven't crossed the therapy threshold yet. We can't call it therapy, but we'll yeah, yeah, <laughs> right. yeah, yeah, yeah. But do they do, yeah. Especially the younger, you know, people in their twenties, in their thirties. Like I have clients they're teenagers and they're like our parents don't even know we're coming to therapy we've wow. you know saved up money to come to therapy i'm I, really amazed i was gonna really i was gonna ask if it's generational if you're finding that i mean you're yeah. young so I, maybe that's part of it and you're you've got this instagram channel stuff but but are your clients do they skew younger rather than older yeah yeah definitely definitely people like uh, below 45 maybe years old 50 years old more attempt a lot more than say people over 50 years old this might be a weird question but where do they get the money is it are they rich kids you know um to my surprise no a lot of them aren't and they they tell me they like we've saved up we are not going to our hairdresser we're not going to the gym we're not doing this not doing that and we're leaving that money for our therapy so they see it as an important part of their life Wow, that's that's yeah. uh, good to hear. What 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 is yeah. the the most pressing issue, or what would be among the pressing issues among your clients in Iran these days? Relationships. Everyone <laughs> is having you know concerns regarding their relationships. Yeah. So. <laughs> So, so it's it's not really breaking news. That's that's the ongoing. Uh, is that any different from any other time? Do you think, or uh, is that what you would have normally dealt with? No, it's it's always been like this. I mean, with my non-Iranian clients, with my Iranian clients, with basically everyone from all ages, it's mostly relationships because you know you don't really have. Well, you do have internal conflicts, but. Your conflicts become uh, much more significant when they are in interpersonal, so when they are with other people. So, yeah, relationships are a big deal. Is there a, a difference between those you see in Iran versus Iranians outside of Iran who solicit your help? Um, I couldn't. I'm not really able to generalize. Um, people have their unique, you know, problems. I can't really group them into separate. Um, but I guess there are more like um, with Iranians in Iran, they're affected by financial problems, which obviously those overseas aren't. Uh, they're affected by some of the, you know, political issues, things like that. But um, in intrapersonal, so things that are going on inside a person are pretty much the same. I think, everywhere. Right, right. Um, yeah. And and the intrapersonal isn't just then about relationships. I mean, you, I'm I'm assuming you have people coming to you going, I'm stressed out. I or I, you know, yeah, I, I, I don't know how to yeah. deal with my lack of uh, funding or whatever. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. This popular Instagram channel that you have this this was something you started when you moved back to Iran a few years ago. Yeah. What what was the impetus for starting this? Well, you know, what I what I realized is that um, regarding people's income, 
a lot of people, a lot of the people uh, living in Iran can't afford therapy. Um, and I realized, you know, people want to be educated. People want to know these things, but they, not everyone is able to afford therapy. Even like, even though there are places that don't charge much, but still, still those people can't afford it. Yeah. So I thought, why not, you know, start a an Instagram page where I can just like share some of my knowledge for free. So those that can't afford therapy, at least they can get some insight. So that's my, that was my first, you know, motive for doing this. So you didn't start it with business concerns in mind. No, no, I didn't. Because I'm a psychoanalyst, I work with a very few number of clients. I already had those clients. I've been working with them for many years. So I didn't really was it wasn't something for me to gain clients with. I, it was uh, my way of like contributing, I guess. And yet it's become <laughs> good business for you. I can only imagine in terms of your name getting yeah. out there. Has it surprised you how successful it's become? Yeah, it has actually, because I don't really advertise my page. Um, it's just been like, you know, people sharing my posts, my stories. Um, and I get a, a lot of positive feedback, you know, inspiring messages, people telling me, you know, I've read this, it's made a big change in my life. I just realized this. And, you know, it's, it, it motivates me. It motivates me to work harder. It, it really does. I found out about you because a friend of mine in California is a huge mm -hmm. fan of yours and follows you on your Instagram channel. Um, mm -hmm. She's she's a woman in her thirties, like you. Uh, I mean, you're this progressive young woman. Does your does your audience skew female, or do you have a lot of men following you as well? Mostly women. Well, you know, through the Instagram um, app, I found out most of them are female and in their thirties. Right. Well, they yeah. they you they can identify yeah. with you, or you can identify with them. Yeah. I guess. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. This person's yeah. a yeah. huge fan. I mean, I've heard. You know, you really do have an effect on people, which is fantastic to hear. Take take us Thank back you. to how this all happened, because you've had an interesting journey. You're born in Iran, but you yeah. left for New Zealand. I'm presuming yes. with your parents. You didn't. You didn't just pack a bag and go at nine years old by yourself. Uh, <laughs> no, so, I was with my parents. Right. This is 1996. Why New Zealand? Um, good question. Um, my my dad had an aunt in Australia um, who had lived there for like, maybe she moved like 40 years ago. And um, she always said, you know, move to Australia. It's such a beautiful place. It's this and that. And then the immigration laws were quite, you know, strict. They were. It was quite difficult to move to Australia. And she said, you know, there's a little island next to Australia, uh, New Zealand. Maybe it's easier to move there. So yeah, my parents applied and you know, they got a work permit and we, there we go. We moved to New Zealand and we had no, we didn't even know which city we were going to. Um, so we were searching for the capital and we found out it was Wellington, but then we found this Iranian friend, um, a, a faraway relative. And he said, no, 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 don't go to Wellington. It's um, not very populated, come to Auckland. So we moved to Auckland. We had no idea where we were going, but it worked out okay. When we first moved there, I think there was only about a thousand Iranians living in Auckland. In uh, no, not Auckland, the whole of, in uh, all of New, New Zealand. Zealand. Yeah, I, I, I yeah. thought I thought Wellington was the cool city. Is Auckland cooler than Wellington? Yeah, Auckland is. Yeah, <laughs> okay. It is. 
All right. I just remember the Mutton Birds always had that song called I Wish I Was in Wellington, and they were a cool band. So I thought, <laughs> must be Wellington must be the place. Um, did you remember as a nine-year-old how you felt about moving to to New Zealand? Was Did your parents tell you we're going to go to this place? I mean, what what's it? What was it like for Tina in, in, in Iran as a nine-year-old just before you were leaving? Well, when I was leaving, I was really excited because I, I had seen all these like foreign movies and I thought we were going to like live in a farm and, um, you know. A farm? I was, <laughs> yeah, a farm. Why, why a farm? <laughs> <laughs> I thought you I thought you were going to talk about Hollywood or something like you know New York no, no. skyline. <laughs> what was no. you saw movies about a farm? <laughs> Actually, New Zealand. No, there was there was this like Canadian TV program, and they showed like these kids in a farm, and they would like have because I was obsessed with animals when I was little. Okay, so I thought I, I'm going to go live in a farm. I'm I'm going to have you know a lot of animals and have all these friends that I'm going to play with. But to be honest, I had a very hard time when I moved there because um, I didn't speak English. It wasn't very multicultural when I moved there. Yeah. Um, I was bullied at school because I couldn't speak. Um, you know, the person next to me would say, hey, can I sit on this seat? And I, I wouldn't know what they're saying. So I just acted like I, you know, didn't know anything. And so you're, you're you're this nine-year-old Iranian girl plopped into a New Zealand into Auckland, and you didn't speak any yeah. English at all. I didn't speak. I well, my parents sent me to like English, uh, you know, English classes in Iran, but they were no use, right. especially with the New Zealand accent. I didn't understand anything. Right, right. It's hard in the best of times for some people to understand yeah. the New Zealand accent, yeah, yeah, even yeah. if they're I fluent in English. Yeah, and and so um, how did that bullying affect you? It was it was really difficult. It was really difficult, um, especially uh, also because of the cultural difference. Like I would take warm sabzi to school, and people would tell me, "Ew, what are you eating? It smells so bad." So I had to like run away to a, you know, my little uh, lonely spot at school, so I could just like eat my lunch alone. Um, so yeah, I had a very hard time. Um, it was very difficult, very difficult first couple of years. I remember the first day I went to school, I came back home and I was like, Mom, I want to go back. Just take me back. And she was like, no, you'll fit in. It took me like a whole year. I was like uh, always begging her to go back. And then I finally learned how to speak English and settled. Uh, but yeah, the first, I always say like, um, take your kids prepared, you know. You can't just take a kid that doesn't speak English, and especially if the country is not very multicultural, if you don't have, yes. say, people of the same culture, of the same language yes. there, you have to take your kids prepared. I wasn't prepared. It was a, I had a hard time, but it helped me, you know, grow. It's interesting because as a, as a kid who grew up in the diaspora, me, uh, you know, I was a kid in the 1980s and I, I talk about being called a terrorist and all these difficult times we had. And mm. by the 90, mid-90s or certainly by the 2000s, somebody coming to a, from Iran to a place like Toronto or a place like LA or Washington, D.C. or London can find a Persian community there, which we didn't have when I was a kid, but exists here exactly. now. A place like Malton, New Zealand, even I guess later uh, later on, as you say, in the, in the late 90s, 
it's still a pretty homogenous place. So you're experiencing all those things. And it's really important to talk about this because there is this myth sometimes, as we've talked about many times on this program, that Iranians, we're just like everybody else, you know, nobody would notice us. If it, and, and you know, these are the stories where we realize we're not, you know, that, that they can tell yeah. that you're uh, uh, that you're from somewhere else, if not uh, uh, Iranian. Um, did they exactly. know you were Iranian or did they think or they, they just knew you were from somewhere else? Uh, no, they didn't even know where Iran was. So they would say, where are you from? And I would say Iran and they say Iraq. So Iraq. And I'm like, no, two different countries. Um, and they would say, so you ride camels in your in your country? <laughs> and, you know, they had no idea. I, I wouldn't blame them. New Zealand was a very lonely, you know, little island in the Pacific Ocean. So they didn't really know anything about Iran. And um, yeah, I didn't because I was quite patriotic as a child. I didn't really like some of the comments they gave. Um, yeah, I, I would say it was difficult. How did your parents adjust? I think, you know what, um, I think it's actually easier for adults than for children or for, uh, if you if go as a very small child, say if, you're, if you leave Iran when you're like three or four, or if you're born abroad, uh, you basically integrate totally in the new culture. I would have been a New Zealander if I had moved there at the age of like two or three, right? Right. Um, if you go as an adult, there is no, there is not so much pressure to integrate in the new culture. You see, so many adults that go there, they find their little like Iranian community. They stick to their like Iranian friends. They just, you know, they don't really have to mix with the new culture. They can just isolate themselves. But when you are at that sort of age, like when I was eight. I wasn't young enough to totally, you know, speak English properly, you know, be a total New Zealander. I had that Iranian background. I had that language difference, that cultural difference. And I wasn't old enough to have my little like Persian community and yeah. not have to really be part of the New yeah. Zealand culture. Yeah. Like my parents, they had they're Iranian friends. They just went to work, had very limited contact with foreigners, came home. That was it. But for me, it wasn't like that. I was sort of in between. And I really had to, you know, both keep my Iranian culture so I could communicate with my parents and my family. And I had to integrate in the New Zealand culture at the same time. So it gave me a lot of perspective. So it was difficult, but it helped me see um, how like a human being can have different perspectives, can be multicultural, can um, have like a variety of um, values, belief systems, that kind of thing. So it's both difficult, I think, at that age, um, uh, but you can also learn a lot from it. Tell me about those cultural differences from a from a sociopolitical standpoint, like um, uh, as you head into your teens and, and your early 20s, what was it like being from a place that is generally considered uh, an oppressive, uh, at least politi politically uh, and socially patriarchal country to a nation like New Zealand that is generally viewed as super progressive and liberal? One thing I experienced, Iranians that have moved abroad like many years ago, they sort of preserve that culture from 
like back in the 80s or back in the 90s. Like my parents, they were a lot more strict than parents living in Iran because they had preserved their like belief systems from the 90s, whereas those living in Iran had upgraded. So they were quite um, traditional, my parents, having really traditional parents and living in a country that was, you know, very rebel, liberal and free and that kind of thing. Uh, during my teenage years, it was a bit difficult. They sent me to a co-ed school. They were quite strict. Um, yeah, I had, uh, it was a little bit difficult. I think uh, basically I integrated. Gradually, gradually, I understood that people could have different ways of thinking. And I accepted that. Um, I didn't expect people to think like my parents or think like me or uh, whatever. I just accepted that people can see things differently. There's the flip side of it too, which is that the country that you move to, I guess a lot like some place like Canada, is welcoming of people um, from all over the world or different races and, and, and types and ethnicities. And, and so um, you, you did have some of the benefits of that uh, in and around the respect that comes with it. Uh, there's an example I'm thinking of in my head. You know, we've talked a few times on this program because it's a particular pet peeve of mine about this um, offensive film from the early 90s called Not Without My Daughter. And oh my God. you have a story yeah. about Not Without My Daughter, which was used as a study book or something in your high school. Um, t- yes. t- t- tell us about that story. Oh, funny you know this story. Um, so basically, um, in my high school, we had to read a novel as part of our um, English class. So this wasn't English. This wasn't ESOL. It was English for everyone. Um, we had to read this book and write essays on it and that kind of thing. So the book they had chosen that year was not without my daughter, uh, the book and the film. And suddenly everyone was talking about it and they like, oh my God, what is the country you're living at? We can't believe you treat women that way and that kind of thing. So, you know, a lot of racism, a lot of racism at the time. So I went to my uh, dean and I said, you know, People are giving me a hard time. Why Why would you, you know, teach this at school? Imagine what would happen to someone from Iran or even the Middle East, um, you know, with, with the approach you're teaching the kids at school. And um, they were really nice about it. I mean, one thing I loved about New Zealand is that you really had a say in everything. Even a small child at school, this was part of the curriculum. It was set. It was, you know, all our exams, essays, everything was supposed to be on this book. And I go to them and I'm like, look, I'm having a hard time because you're teaching this at school. And they basically removed it from the curriculum. So, you know, the, the good thing is, okay, there were some things that might hurt you, but you always had a say in it. It's amazing. And, um, I really appreciate it. The, the amazing part of that story is the strength that you have as a kid to go and say, uh, hey, uh, this book should be taken off the curriculum. <laughs> I don't know if I would have yeah. that. That uh, Well, maybe I would. I, but, well, how old were you? Were you in, in high school when you did that? Yeah, high school. I was, I think, 14. Good for you. Chuck won a, yeah. a, a win for uh, our team that we got not, not without my daughter taken off the curriculum in a New Zealand school. You've also <laughs> said that you wanted to 
help people? You've always known as a teenager that you wanted to help people. Where did that instinct to want to help out, the the idea of the collective come from? You know, I've been through a lot in my own life. I've been lonely. You know, when when I moved to New Zealand, I was a lonely child with no family. I was bullied. Um, you know, I came from a quite wealthy family, but when we moved there, you know, the Toman wasn't worth anything. So we were living a quite a poor life, I would say. So I've been through all that and I know how it feels and I know how lonely I felt when I was going through that and I didn't have any help. So from what I've been through, I've been, I've become very passionate about like when I didn't have a hand that would like help me out of the out of that situation and I didn't have a I didn't have a friend I didn't have anyone to talk to so I know how that feels and I want to be that companion for other people I didn't have it but I can provide it for somebody else Mm. so that's I think a major driving force having been through very difficult times and not having any support I wanted to be that support for other people, and you end up becoming a psychologist. The, the, so, so mm. I guess I guess the dream of being an astronaut slowly died. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've always been. I was a very curious child. I was always fascinated about knowing things that sometimes I wasn't supposed to know. I remember I uh, the first um, time I asked my mother how babies were made. I was maybe about seven years old and she's like well where did you get that idea from so i was always um wanted to know things wanted to find out things and astronomy was fascinating for me because you know space is so mysterious but i still i still really enjoy it i still watch like bbc documentaries on astronomy and stuff it's really fascinating but i found something more fascinating and that was the human mind so you've said so yes you did find something quite fascinating the human mind and you you know you've talked about this really i found interesting you talked about being a how being a psychologist helps you to not be scared do you remember saying that Yes. What What does that mean? In what context um, did I say this? Because I've said it in different ways. Ah, I see. Um, well, in the context that I saw you say, you said it to you because um, you uh, are always aware that there's going to be some kind of solution in life. Yeah. Well, basically, uh, studying psychology it first helped me. It fa- first helped me face my own fears. Um, uh, go into my own fears and at the end of it you realize you know um, you've sort of catastrophized about things that aren't really going to happen or aren't really as bad as you think they were Um, then when you work with clients gradually gradually you see how you know hand in hand you could make a difference so you don't you don't really have to fear complications that people are facing it things can be done you can be active i mean i always talk about in the worst of situations there is still a range of actions you can take that will make that very difficult situation just a little bit better Mm -hmm. so there's always things you can do 
even in the, at the worst of times. So that that gives you a sense of um, authority in life. So you can go fight things, you can make a difference. So it basically makes you less fearful of things, mm. I would say. Tina, tell me about the decision to return to Iran six years ago. You, you're, you're in New Zealand, you've, now you've assimilated, you're uh, a New Zealander, you're uh, doing well, you've got, you're working on your masters, you're, you, you decide to visit Iran. At what point do you make the decision that this is gonna be a permanent move back to Iran? So basically it wasn't a decision really. Um, I always wondered about Iran. I, I had this passion for Iran. Um, I remember, so when I moved to New Zealand, I hadn't uh, visited Iran like for maybe six, seven years. And then I visited and it was very different for me. The first week I didn't really like it. I couldn't really connect with the environment and the people, uh, but gradually, you know, I found my little place um, and I connected with people. And then I would go back every maybe one year or two years just for holiday. And every time I went, I felt this connection. I always say, you know, I've actually researched on this. There's a concept called uh, place attachment. So they say um, when you're born, the first few years of life, you get attached in a different way in a very deep sense with the closest people to like your parents or mm, your very yeah. um, um or your family um so they say the same thing happens with the place you spend the first few years of your life you have this very unique attachment to that place and it's called place attachment and um for me uh, i could really feel that i felt this unique attachment to Iran, it was like a parent for me. So your parent might not be the best parent. They may be impolite. They might sometimes not treat you well. They might be this and that, but you feel different about them. So uh, somebody, if somebody tells you, hey, um, you know, let go of your dad and we will grant you a different father who's you know, very polite, very rich, very understanding, very this, very that. Um, but you have to forget about your own dad. And most people would say, no, I don't want to do that sure, because yeah. they are not my dad. Right. I still have these, these unique feelings for my own dad. Iran feels like that for me. It's like a parent. It might not be perfect. Well, it, it isn't. And um, it has a lot of faults, but you feel this like very unique attachment because you were born born there and because maybe your parents were from that culture yeah, and yeah. Um, because I spent the first few years of my life there. So I always felt this unique sense towards Iran. Every time I went there, it was different for me. It was different to everywhere. Um, so when I finished my master's in New Zealand, I thought I wanted to go travel the world, see, explore, and I went like traveling in Southeast Asia and Europe. And the last destination was Iran. So I go there, I thought I'll spend one or two months, which I did. And then I thought, oh, I'm having a good time. Why not spend like six months? 
So I stayed another six months and then I thought I'll stay another year. And mind you, my parents didn't move back with me and I have no family. I basically have one uncle in Iran and that's it. Uh, most of my like father's family have moved overseas maybe like 30 years ago. My mom's family also same thing. So I don't really have any family there either. And they were all panicking. They're like, what are you doing? You don't know the place. Um, you don't know the culture. You don't have anyone there. So they were very discouraging my family when I moved there. And I was like, no, don't worry. I'm just exploring. I'll move back soon. Um, so I spent an, a year and then two years and I've been there for the past six years. Wow. So it wasn't really a decision. It was just a thing that just um, a process that took place. And yeah, I've been, yeah, it's been good. It's been good. It's well, it's got to be more than good if you've decided that's your place. I mean, uh, you've also mm. taught, you you, I mean, you and I were talking uh, before and, and you were saying that you found um, life is more meaningful for you in Iran. That's a, that's quite a profound thing to say. I love the analogy you just drew, or the metaphor of your of it, of it being like a parent and that attachment that you have. But more meaningful. What does that mean? I think I can contribute to the people of Iran a lot more than I would be able to contribute in New Zealand. In New Zealand, I'm just another psychologist, like many psychologists that are living there. They're well educated. They know what they're doing. There would be many of us. I'm not doing a unique job. But in Iran, you know, having taken that multicultural per perspective, having taken that, you know, education, um, having taken that life experience and taking all that back to Iran, and working with the people that live there and maybe they don't have the chance to you know work with many psychologists like myself i believe we have some of the best best psychologists in iran but not many of them um, around so i think you know what i carry with me the potentials i have I can contribute a lot more when i'm living in iran than when i would have lived in new zealand and that contribution, that making change uh, that I see, like that I'm doing in Iran, is making my life a lot more meaningful than it, that it would have been, say, in New it. Zealand. In New Zealand, doing psychology would have been my career, but in Iran, it's my lifestyle. It's, it's part of like making meaning for my life, yeah. I appreciate that. Um, do you have to clear your throat? Are you okay? <laughs> I'm fine. I <laughs> got, got some, some vocal water. fry. I wasn't sure if you're doing that on purpose or not. It's very Britney Spears. <laughs> I want to ask you about. Uh, I know I can't keep you forever. I'll, I'll just get a few more questions. I want to ask you about Iranians sure. and the psychological disposition. Um, mm -hmm. Let's start with trust because mm -hmm. we often have guests on our show from the Iranian diaspora uh, who talk about how much lack of trust there is amongst Iranians, mm -hmm. even in our families, mm -hmm. you know. And some blame this, of course, on all the horrible events over recent decades in the home country. Do, do you concur that trust is an issue for Iranians? And how do you try to address that? Trust, I think, is an issue, definitely, definitely. Um, one thing that doesn't make us united in whatever movement we try to, you know, do I think it's trust because in any movement you need to trust 
everybody else that's gonna you know um be part of that movement and because people don't trust each other they don't stay united exactly so i think trust is a big deal um why people don't trust each other i think lots of different things firstly the way we raise our children i think we culturally we lie to our children a lot like i see like parents they would they would say hey they would say to their child hey do this and i'll take you to the park and they never do it's just an incentive <laughs> that is never going to happen wow. um so you you learn as a child that you know people aren't very honest with you and then socially also you know people lie um why do they lie i think there's social and political things behind it that I probably don't want to go into. And um, but anyway, the consequence is basically, I think there is a big issue with trust amongst the Iranians, definitely. And do you I mean, there's obviously no easy prescription for that. But um, how do you how do we work on that? The only thing I could think of just on the top of my head right now is with parenting with parenting just never lie to your children just tell them the truth um and make a safe enough environment for them to live their own truth so you tell them the truth and you allow them to tell you the truth also so the 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 family is safe enough so whatever they're doing they feel that they can really tell the truth and not get in trouble um that's all that comes to my mind at the moment there's also social and political things that can be done but that's a different story tina you've also said yeah. one of one of our issues as iranians is that we are always looking for affirmation and confirmation from each other how so yeah i i i just remembered w which post you were talking about yeah definitely it's a big issue people aren't living their truth because they're so obsessed with getting affirmation from other people i think it's a cultural thing you know we have uh, we have terms like aberu which you don't even have in english like if you find if you try to search that term there's no english uh, you know translation for it so basically um it's a big thing culturally to be approved by others to be affirmed by others and it really compromise you know people have to compromise a lot uh people have to move away from the ways they want to live and the things they want to achieve just because they want to satisfy uh other people and they want to be uh, affirmed so yeah it's a huge cultural issue would Oberu be uh, status yeah kind of well it's not really status i want to say you know um like yeah like they say Auburn raft it's like losing face but yes you don't really face, use yeah. that kind of terms in english do you, right, you right, know right i mean i guess you could say i you're going to lose face but not in the same way and not with the same gravitas as as yeah, exactly. oh, yeah it's, it's, uh, yeah um the other thing that i found interesting that you've said is that 
Um, you believe Iranians are passive. And, you know, when we were beginning the conversation and talking about COVID, it, it occurred to me what you said, oh, you know, the Iranians are not really wearing the masks. Um, I, I wondered if that's part of that disposition of like, oh, we can't be bothered. We've dealt with enough shit in our lives, you know, so who cares? This is just another thing. Uh, is that where you're going with that? Tell me about Iranians being passive. There's a psychological term um it's known as learned helplessness they've done studies on they've done animal studies and human studies where you um set a task for like an animal or a human and they try like uh, say you you tell a child to make a puzzle and they will make attempts and say if you make a puzzle so difficult that the child will fail and fail and fail over and over again, then they will give up. They won't make any more attempts. So basically, if people live in an environment where they will um, make attempts to achieve different things, and if those attempts are failed over and over again, they will reach this state, which is called learned helplessness. And in that state, you no longer make any more attempts. You become hopeless. You don't care anymore. You accept whatever that is happening to you. I think that's something Iranians have um, experienced for many years. They make attempts. They try to get their voice heard. Uh, they try to make a difference, and those attempts have failed over and over again. So in the society, in families, um, so in the small system and in the big system, the attempts are failed. So, you know, when we talked about me at school going to my dean and saying, you know, you're playing this yes. movie, you're teaching this novel, it's really affecting me. What happened? They made a difference. So what did I learn? I learned that if I, you know, follow up on something I believe in, I can make a difference. But say if I went to a school in Iran, likely they would say, go back to your class, shut your mouth. This is what we're going to teach. So I make that attempt once. I would make different attempts at different situations. And then if this failure happens over and over again, I won't be making any more attempts. I will be passive and I won't care anymore so when the iranians in iran right now when mm-hmm. you go back there and you go on the subway or you walk around the street or you see are not wearing masks the way they are in dubai or the way we are here in canada is that mm-hmm. learned helplessness i think so i think so they 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 believe in destiny so what's destiny destiny is i have no say in what happens to me If something is meant to happen to me, it will happen to me. So um, wearing a mask, taking precautions, taking care won't make a difference. So why not just, you know, be passive and not do anything about it? It's quite a tragic disposition, really. And it's Mm -hmm. weird because 
it butts up against the the other sort of side of Iranians who where we say you know with our superiority complex you know we are Cyrus the Great and we we come from this yeah. you know and and yet we've you know that doesn't jive with helplessness you know of I well it's a destiny I don't know what I can do about this this thing you know um, I did my master's my uh, second master's degree uh, on this it, I uh, research on Iranian and Australian women on their views on uh, breast cancer and breast cancer screening. Yes. And I found that Australian women, they always went for screening. They would do their um, self-scan, mammography, everything, because they, they thought that they had a say in getting breast cancer and getting treatment. So they, they had a say in it. If they, they did the mammography and everything, they could detect the uh, cancer earlier and they would survive. But Iranians, they didn't even do the self-scan because they thought what the, the notion that came out of that, the main theme was Iranians would say, if something is meant to happen, it will happen. If that's part of my destiny, it's going to happen. If I'm going to die from breast cancer, I will. So there's no point of me, you know, undergoing screening. So they were, they were uh, very ignorant about it. And that's why, that's one of the reasons why the survival rate in Iran is much, much lower than Western countries such as Australia. Wow, I'm 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 grateful that you went to that place with your talking about your masters and that study you did because it dovetails into what I I was going to ask you before I let you go, which is uh, mm -hmm. I I know the reason Tina you're going to the United States is that your your mom has been diagnosed with breast cancer. Um, yes, she has been. And uh, I'm sorry to hear that. I, I um how is she, how is she doing? Um. Well, she's very she's being very brave, very strong, actually. Um, yeah, she, you know, it was very difficult for both of us. I remember the day, because uh, she she did her, um, she did very um, basic tests in the US. And as soon as they suspected her of breast cancer, she flew to Iran because she wanted to see everyone before she knew for sure that she had breast cancer. And before she had to undergo a treatment. And so when she reached Iran, I said, you know, we have to go uh, get this checked further to make sure you, you know, to make sure you have breast cancer or we have to find out what it is. And I remember that day we were sitting at the doctors and, uh, the, you know, doc some of the doctors in Iran, they're not really good at giving such news. and. Basically, he was very brutal about it. He was like, yes, it's cancer and, you know, you have to start your treatment immediately. Not much uh, empathy we didn't receive. But anyway, I remember, you know, it was devastating. It was really difficult for both of us. But um, she, she was very strong about it. She's like, I faced all my fears. Um, maybe this is a challenge. This is a test um, for me. And I'm going to go through it and I'll be okay. So she was actually giving me hopes um, yeah. about it. And um, yeah, it was a big test because I worked on this for my master's and I was trying to tell women that they should um, stay positive about it and 
uh, know that they can be active and know that they can make a difference and how much mental health has a big say in yeah. survival. Yeah. And then next thing you know, my own mother has uh, breast cancer. So I really have to walk the talk um, basically at the moment and uh, doing my best. And she's, yeah, she's doing fine. She's being very strong, very strong woman. And in the end, vis-a-vis -vis the study you did, did she react? Yeah. Did she react like an Iranian woman or an Australian woman? No, she reacted like an Australian woman. Actually, she she had done her self exam and then she went to the doctor immediately. And so she's um, only stage one, which is good. And um, she's had her surgery and will be undergoing um, chemo and radiotherapy. So I'll be uh, flying there to support her through that. She's lucky to have you. We wish her the best. Be safe yourself going to all these places. Um, it's Thank been such you. a pleasure talking to you. I look forward to doing it again. Thank you for all the work Thank that you. you do on your, your Instagram channel, and thank you for coming on, Rook. Thank you. Thank you so much. Be safe. All right. Khodafis. Talk to you soon. Bye. 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 Tina Parselman, a psychologist and psychoanalyst, the host of the popular channel Insight with Tina Parsa on her Instagram platform of the same name. Tina Parsaman joined us from Dubai today. And this is full time for Rook for today. Remember the hub of all things Rook, our website, rookmedia.com. Rookmedia.com, where you can also see our support Rook button. Thank you to our amazing team who all work so hard on this. Our little team of dazzling folks. Savi Roham, Agamer Dodd, producer Susan Ponta, the artist, English Muhammad, the fabulous Keon, Captain Reza, and Groovy Shia. Thanks to all of you out there supporting us. Keep spreading the word. Mizun Washing.